This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. You do know, you already said it. You said on fire yesterday. <laughs> hi, hi, everyone. We're live. <laughs> We're live. But, you know, the conversation starts and then it keeps going because there's, you know, we're here. Uh, how, how art thou? How's everyone? Good morning. Doing well. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Got to right. open my app here, the Nubia app. Yeah, we got to get into the chat. Good morning, Nubians, and Good afternoon. Morning because they're all over the globe from London to South Africa. How about that? Here. Yeah, different times and different places. Switzerland, we got some Nubians in Switzerland. I mean, in Bermuda. Good morning, Bermuda. Hi. Um, we wait for Asians to come in. Yeah, is everything. My hero. Hey, Laurie. So, Laurie Daniel Favors, of course, Nubian. We were, I was talking about you yesterday on the radio because Dr. Carr came in. And I was saying the dope thing about Nubia is that um, there are already organizers in Nubia. And all we need to do uh, to combat what's going on is everywhere you live, you know, tap into the Nubians there. And then we'll have a strategy for how we can control our area, which is all we can do at this point, because it's too late to undo the damage of 2016. Mm. Or is it? Or is this the damage of 2016? Let me say less. Okay. <laughs> hey, look, I'm just glad that you talked Marie into joining us live again because you hear all the time, sis, but we, we need your big mind on this one right here. What you think? You know, I gotta be honest. Um, Karen, you said something on your show yesterday, like what good is it to be able to see around corners if ain't nobody altering their behavior because of what you just told them you saw coming? And you know, part of me, a teeny tiny little, you know, ignorant part of me was like, I told you, I told you it was coming. I've been saying this since law school. I told you it was coming. Come on now. Um, but that part was quickly dwarfed by, you know, Karen, I think what you rightly noted, who cares <laughs> that you were able to see it right. coming 20 years ago when you were debating in law school and people thought you were high on that academic crack. Um, but, you know, I appreciate the honesty of this moment. I appreciate the uh, just the willingness to say, you know what, we're done with the pretense. We have decided, we, we sampled the integration buffet. Uh, I, there's this uh, spiritual teacher that talks a lot about life as a buffet and you get to choose from the things that you want. And if you don't, if something appears on your plate, you don't like it, oh, you just send it back, it's a buffet. And it feels like our uh, white savagist neighbors have decided they've sampled the integration buffet. And darling, they just do not like it. They're sending it back. And they want to go back to what the old meal was. And they've just decided we're, no, we're done with the 58, 60 years of pretense. And this is what we really want. Um, we're going to be unabashed about how we get it. And you'll just deal with the consequences. And we've got the guns. Remember that, because we just made sure you were going to have plenty of guns uh, two days before this decision. So what you going to do? Who's going to check us, boo? Let's sit there. We got we to get some oil for your chair. Dr. Park, you need to some oil to your I don't want this child two years of sitting here. Uh, is it too much? Oh, yeah. You know what it is? I had the microphone down here where the chair where I hadn't put it up here yet. This should help a little. Okay, 
Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. And that will drive you crazy. I yeah. feel like Nipsey Teeny. Ah, see, see, it's that pop culture reference. All right, we good. Let me ask both of you this. Um, to to Larie's point of the uh, integration buffet is now off the plate. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think they imagine? Because they're already seventy five percent of of uh, white folk self-identified white folks, self-segregate. So they already live in neighborhoods, three-fourths of them that only look like them. Their children only go to schools, three-fourths of them with people who only look and think like them. So what? what's the goal? I mean, you already have mechanisms in this country, Utah, South Dakota, North Dakota, where uh, Maine. Hi, Susan Collins, you liar. You already have places in the world where you don't have to see us, be around us, except in uh, service capacities. So what what what's the problem? And in the and 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 on the weekends when you cheer for our children as they run up and down and dance and throw balls and hoops, or maybe in the middle of the night after your wife's going to sleep, and you open your laptop. But beyond that, yes, you don't have to see us in person. Yeah, that's true. But we animate your imagination your desire we animate and you know deep down somewhere i think probably in that deep dna or as the evolutionary biologists might call it maybe epigenetics that we are your parents mm-hmm. and perhaps as we often say you know we made a mistake walking up into that ice and getting caught in that interglacial period it was probably an era of you know, human beings are built to roam so we roamed around the ball we got trapped in the ice age and you know we adapted because that's what human beings did and i think in many ways, the best and the worst of us came out, just like the best and the worst of us come out whenever we are anywhere. And I'm not talking to, it's not biological determinism here. I'm talking about cultural determinism. When you start talking about scarcity and fear and fear-driven social organizations, a lot of that comes from how you respond to your environment. I mean, mm. you, won't, you won't find the Hansel and Gretel story, a little red riding hood. You won't find any of those stories in places where the climate is more temperate. I mean, you can't take care of old folks when it's, you know, three miles to feed and here come grandma. No, you got to go to the woods, baby. (laughs) We can't, you know, and we got to teach the children young to be suspicious of strangers and old people. Mm. And so this isn't biological at all. It's cultural. And, uh, you know, and we'll get into it deeper. I mean, before, before the decision, which we all knew was coming, was handed down. We were talking earlier in the week here, and I said, you know, since you all did a fantastic convening around Octavia Butler's 75th birthday, and when Tanana Rivdu said, you know, Miss Butler thought perhaps we wouldn't be a long live species, and she's writing with that in mind, you know, we're thinking about, you know, and as we continue in parables, in the parable series, Monday night, we'll get into parable of the talents for the first of two weeks after we spent the last three thinking about Miss Butler in many ways, she's really talking about governance formations. What do you do when the thing that was created in this modern world system erodes and collapses? Because inevitably it has to, because it's built on a structural, a set of structural presumptions that are anti-life, not just anti-human, anti-life. And so we'll collapse. So she's writing in Parable of, of the Sower, and especially in Parable of the Talents, about governance. How do you form governance? How do you govern yourselves? How do you create different ways of knowing or tap into the old ways and so the only other thing I would say initially is before this thing dropped, 
we were thinking, okay, let's talk more about Octavia Butler. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about Monday night. And as we continue with these 13, 14, 1500 people, as people, more and more people come just on Monday nights, not even the thousands more who are in narrative and, and growing. And then connect that to what's happening in the world we live in with Francia Marquez in, in Colombia. You know, she's not, it's not just a black woman. Because if it was just about a black woman, the fascists who they contrived to run against her ticket had a black woman on the ticket. So it's not just politics and demographics. It's like, right. what do you stand for? She stands for the people. She stands not just for African people, but for everybody, the poor, the oppressed. And she's part of a trend. As you mentioned the other day, Macron lost his majority and people are focusing on Marine Le Pen, the right wing in France. But there's also a left wing. People say we can't take mm -hmm. this anymore. And meanwhile, in Latin America, you look at Mexico, you look at uh, what in Brazil, Lula's probably coming back as president. People in Latin America are pushing back against these fascists. And it's, of course, Steve Bannon, who I have a great deal of respect for because it's a, a gnarled, shrinking little man, white nationalist. He, too, like you, like you, Larry, or and anybody else who was really paying attention, saw this coming. So he tried to get out in front of it. Let me find a stooge I can ride to the American White House while I'm all through Europe, while I'm all through Asia, while I'm trying to foment this last stand of the race of the white race and these capitalists. I'm hitting around at Davos, sniffing around. I'm trying to get ahead of this because what are you trying to get ahead of? You're trying to get ahead of the fact that the people in the world are pushing back. Mm. So I'm actually very, um, very optimistic and kind of in some ways, both optimistic and very sad in the short term about this decision. Because while we were talking about all that, this thing and building a place, continue to build a place like this, an Mbangi, a form of acorn, to borrow the metaphor from Octavia Butler, where we can build and think and plan and do. Here's the thing. This decision came down. And what is the unintended consequence? What's, well, I think what will be revealed now with a lot of pain before it's fully revealed is that most people in the world and most people in this country are not members of the Ku Klux Klan are not white nationalist fascists. They may have a latent fascism that they, and, and they'll go along to get along, but you continue and continue to you touch a thing that will capture people's attention. Almost like a mass capture. It's very different than an elite capture. But let me pause here, because I don't want to, now no. I think we need, I mean, but I think that's, we're on the verge now. This thing dropped in the middle and it didn't shift what we were going to talk about. It certainly kind of gave it focus. I think we'll see as we had this conversation. And there was a drumbeat leading up to this because for weeks we knew that this was happening. I don't know why people were shocked and awed and what have you, but the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, and there were two decisions yesterday that both centered around what people are, you know, the media are talking about is, you know, abortion and anti-abortion and women's rights to choose. But as both of you pointed out, Larry Daniel Favors on your show at 10 a.m. Eastern on SiriusXM. If you don't have SiriusXM, uh, in the YouTube link, there is a free uh, trial that you can click on on my page. On So you can listen to Larry, go to the back episodes and listen to her Friday show. Um, and Dr. Carr was on my show yesterday. This is not about abortion at all. So how, how slick is it? that that's the red herring when it's really about so much more. But you know, that's kind of always been the red herring. Like the reason we have this anti-abortion movement in the first place is because they quickly realized, they being right-wing uh, white Christian nationalists, 
that having this moral issue of saving the babies uh, was going to be persuasive enough that it would create a, a, a functioning umbrella under which people who also had racist tendencies, white supremacist latent beliefs would also find a home. So they've been able, and this has been because we, and we know this is the, the case because when the immediacy, in the immediacy of the decisions, uh, the Casey decision, the Roe decision, we don't see this galvanizing anti-choice pro-life situation. That comes a few years later. And it comes a few years later when Republicans uh, and conservative Christo-nationalists are seeking a, a mobilizing issue upon which they could bring all of these other issues. So we're saving the babies in the abortion fight, but we're also concerned about schools and what's happening in curriculums and this CRT, it's just <laughs> got me very concerned. And they're also concerned about these aggressive integration policies. And while I may live in a community, Karen, where there's only 70, where 70% where 70 of us are, are self-segregated and I don't ever see a white, a black person, just like the, the boy, uh, the young man in, in Buffalo uh, who lived in a 99.9% .9 white community uh, with 99.1% education, access, resources. But in his imagination, the black boogeyman features so prominently that even the mere thought of a threat mm. that there is somebody out there who might take something from me, it runs completely counter to what I've been taught to embrace, which is the benefits of whiteness. You know, if you have an insurance policy, you expect some benefits out of that insurance policy. And as a white person, my insurance policy tells me I don't just have total control over my experience and my surroundings uh, where I live, but I have it internationally. Wherever my imagination may roam, there in those spaces too do I also have the ultimate in white power and the capacity to run the world as I see fit. And so this mythological boogeyman that they have, because their entire reality exists in opposition. Their entire reality, their mm. definition of who they are exists in opposition. Mm -hmm. Their idea of what they want the world to look like is in opposition to what the natural order of the world is. And so I think that even if you do, if you are born and raised in an all white environment, if you are told the blacks are coming and then they want this affirmative action and they want to take from you what's rightfully yours and part of convincing us that what's rightfully ours is to dominate the entire world comes with an understanding that there can be no one left to challenge us. We have to have mm -hmm. not just domination, complete, total, and 100% domination is required because if there's a room for resistance, then there's also room for the idea that my domination is based on something wrong. And, and so I have to be correct and I have to have 1000% compliance because if there's room for this to be questioned and I'm wrong, what does that say about who I am, my entire history, and how I have interacted with every people in the world from a perspective of destroying them? Kind of like the Borg. Like, yeah. in, you know, it's like, they, like their entire existence yeah. is they have nothing on their own, nothing culturally that they value, they, no seasoning, neither in the food nor in the spices of their Ooh. mind. And everywhere <laughs> they go, they absorb and take because there's nothing there, no substance there. And what is there is rooted in a culture of lack. As you mm -hmm. noted, Dr. Carr, I've rooted in a culture of, of there is not enough. We are a warlike people because our physical environment has taught us there's just not enough in this world. And if it's going to be me or you, if it's going to be me or you, it's going to be me. Gonna and be I'm going to create an entire warlike culture to support that. Um, and then I'm going to go down to the South where they have plenty of everything and they don't have the same war type culture. And it's just there for my taking. And in my view of the world, who's going to stop me? Who's going to stop me? Yeah, and, and then me, we're going to make universal.
That's what that's what the philosopher Sylvia Winter always talks about. This concept of man, we call it humanism. We call it values and freedom. And no, it's what you said, Larry. It is it's meanness. It is me. The 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 the, the unit of reality is the individual. Yeah, me. So that me is going to be us versus y'all until it ain't but us left. And then when it's us, it's going to be me versus you. It's always going to be a me until we shrink down. So we get rid of all the non-white people. Oh, okay, well, Italians, Jews, come here. We now, we don't need this kind of whiteness. We're going to keep shrinking, keep shrinking. It's very, that's a very powerful lens through which to mm. think about this. And we have to think about it that way. And, and since we're in this space of community and of abundance, okay, um, mm -hmm. how part of the reason why we're reading Parable of the Sower and Parable of Talents, part of the reason why we're sitting in community with the ancestor Octavia Butler is because she, again, saw around corners because she was paying attention and mm -hmm. mm -hmm. imagined a world where there'd be a president that wanted to make America great again and that had these kinds of iterations and ideologies. And I want to make sure that we don't allow for it to go ahead. Y'all destroy yourselves. What's our recourse? Hmm. Well, like, like I said before, um, so-called Thanksgiving genocide day, when I go to, if I'm in DC and go down to the American Indian museum, I'm one time I was down there and they were having a ritual. And I asked one of the brothers indigenous cat who was a veteran because he had, he had his uniform on. And so, you know, how, how do you reconcile being in the American military as an indigenous person when you really are in many ways captive here? They got prison. He said, well, when they attacked the United States, I was here first. This is my land. So I wear this uniform so they'll give me the weapons. <laughs> and so, and I'm thinking, I, I think very much similarly about the United States, quite frankly. The re, I mean, people say, well, are you patriotic? Hell no. We prisoners of war. We the children of prisoners of war. They they declared war on us. You'll never say I'm, I feel about that American flag the same way Jackie Robinson felt mm. about it. I'm not standing for it. I'm not saluting it. So you don't have to go to Colin Kaepernick. But I said all that to say that one of the key tenets, it seems to me, and reasons for and values of having an Africana studies framework, like the conversations that we're having, is that we had to have perspective. Something you said a second ago, I mean, everything you said, but I mean, I'm focusing specifically on this whole concept of if you take this away, who are we? It's so valuable to us. When we're reading these decisions, Samuel Alito, again, I respect all of them because they are so afraid. You know, Alito is transparent about this. When he reaches back into U.S. history and says there is this long tradition of being against abortion, He's absolutely right. Now, when he does that, as he did in, in the Jackson and the Dobbs case, Dobbs versus Jackson case, he is being remarkably fear-driven and selective. So as people of African descent who live in this country, who have been forced to learn English and ancestors, and, and if we mistake his memory for ours, well, we can't get out of this mess. But if we remember, okay, all those laws you're talking about, what? Yeah, almost all of them were passed when women who were white could not vote and black women were basically stock. 
and ATMs. And I don't mean stock like livestock. I mean, when you had a black woman, that meant she was going to have children. You keep having her get pregnant and she's basically birthing and your stock value goes up. So of course you don't want any life terminated coming out of an African woman's womb because you're going to put that life to work. You, you, you remarkable, glorious Italian Samuel Alito, whose people had to fight their way into whiteness and you damn sure going to preserve it because you put in your judgment that we have to go back and look at the history. Okay. But if, if we mis mistake our history for your history, then we got a problem. And you know what's so funny? I'll end with this. It's very interesting because in the, um, was it the gun case? Yeah, I think Breyer wrote dissent. Breyer, Amy Comey Barrett asks, how far past original intent, uh, how far past original intent makes it impossible for us to go back and try to impute into these founders of these documents what their meaning was and and then and then briar in dissent writes well your memory's very interesting you have such a selective memory you want to go back in history but then you cherry pick the history briar was being honest but i'm thinking as people of african descent, oh come, come on come on back um i'm thinking as people of african descent should we even be commingling our experiences and memories with this social structure so when they always saying we and they always saying our founding fathers, our principles, our aspirations, the minute we accept that, and I watched, you know, Karen, watch you and and Professor Do have that conversation. You kept saying we, we, no. Our survival, not only our survival as people of African descent, our survival as a human species relies on us not buying into the presumption of your memory. And that's why I respect Clarence Thomas as well. Clarence Thomas is a slave. When you are a slave, you don't think you have a humanity. So you're begging these, your master for memories, for identity, for grounding. And of the nine on the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas is by far, and he was this long before. I remember, uh, what's his name? Andrew Sullivan writing in the New Yorker many years ago. Y'all looking at Scalia and saying that Thomas is Scalia's lapdog. You've mistaken this. You see, Thomas is a true believer. He doesn't, very, it may, uh, John Roberts may be the architect of this court, but Clarence Thomas is the leader of this court because as a slave, he has completely bought into the lie of the founders. Fool, you'd have had your shirt off in a cotton field if you know, but the founders. Okay, this man is, that's a slave mind. So I don't know, Larry. I mean, you, you not only grapple with this intellectually and ideologically, and now as you occupy that space publicly, you translate and have conversations a bit, but you see where the rubber meets the road in terms of real world consequences. This decision impacting, I don't know if you, Fast Times had an article yesterday. The corporations have already said, begun to say, we'll pay for our employees to fly wherever they need to do to take whatever they come back. But how about those poor women, Larry? I'm trying to help. I know you were talking about that. Yes. Can you work? I mean, I, I know that's a lot, but help us unpack the, the implications and what we can do about it. You know, Dr. Carr, I'm, I'm reminded of, as I do every day, talk about the Kwanzaa principles. And I, I don't just talk about the Kwanzaa principles because it, it's a wonderful thing to discuss. I think that if we were to extend the Kwanzaa principles beyond that week to the 51 remaining weeks of the year and lived by them daily, we would see the types of changes that we need more rapidly. But one of my favorite principles is Kuchichakalia and this idea of having conflated memory and this idea of having again, almost like a lobotomy or, or a surgical procedure where our memory, uh, which is the key to who we are, has been removed or supplanted or shoved to the side and replaced with this 
probe, if you will, I hate to go into Star Trek, but this no, replacement no, no, this probe, um, <laughs> that is doing the thinking for us. And, and I think that in the case of a Justice Thomas, you have someone who the probe has taken over the ability to resist. Right? So there's, I imagine, a battle between the inner self, the true self, and the probe. And I feel as though he represents what happens when the probe has been allowed to probe too long. And but, but which is important to know because we're all capable of that, no right? Question. He's we, we are all because we all have the same sickness. Like we've all got a pro. We all got an inner white man, an inner white woman that we are trying to extra, you know, ex. Uh, what is it when you're an exorcism? Yes. Uh, but yes. that demon, is still, <laughs> that demonic <laughs> way of thinking is still there. Yes. And I think that mm. when we're we're thinking about how, because you mentioned the international realm just a moment ago, and you were talking mm -hmm. about Brazil and Colombia, what's happening in these spaces. We got to remember that the way that America configures itself at home is also important, not just for American geopolitics, but for international functioning. So that reestablishing an open embrace of white nationalism domestically then sets the foundation so that it's easier to do the same thing internationally. So we kind of see the reverse of what was happening with the civil rights movement. They needed to stop showing the Negroes getting hosed down with the dogs so that internationally they could sustain, um, maintain their standing. But the idea that um, like a Clarence uh, being on the forefront. And I remember somebody telling me when President Barack Obama was running that, oh, I want to make sure I get it right. When you don't make the rules, and you're just hired to enforce them, you bring with you a sense of almost that inferiority because Clarence Thomas has clearly demonstrated that he is here to enforce, come Massa, trust me, I could do it. I was gonna be the best at it. I was, I was gonna defend us better than you, Massa. And <laughs> this right. idea, and, and the person who was saying it was saying it in reference to President Obama. Y'all don't come for me about Obama. We, we ain't having that conversation. But the well, idea was that- You know you want him to come. I mean, they were setting my expectations because I didn't know why I was so disquieted. And they were like, well, because we kind of know that when we don't make the rules, but we are brought into a racist institution to uphold the rules, we will often uphold the rules with a, a faithfulness to them that the originators didn't even intend. They, they weren't even that committed to it. That's and so it. I think we see that with a Clarence Thomas. But one thing about this history that they are choosing to remember, that we cannot, because we have to be motivated by Kuji Chakalia. We gotta know who we are, we gotta know this history. This idea of being anti-abortion because it was going to be uh, negative, it would have a negative impact on your portfolio. Being anti-abortion because it was going to have a negative impact on your personal economy, the economy of the plantation, and recognizing that when you think about that history, when you think about who was the one, who were the ones writing the laws, what were they, what were they motivated by? They were motivated by this very intense desire to create whitetopia. Teach. And the, all their Teach. rules, all Teach. the functioning, what was at the heart of the history making that they were, and, and again, we knew slavery was wrong during enslavement because people during enslavement were running away. We knew enslavement was wrong because people during enslavement were abolitionists. Like, so it wasn't like that slavery existed in a vacuum where, well, we just had no idea that what we were doing were so wrong. People were telling you in real time, like people who were rebelling and putting glass in your rice and grinding up like oh, chemicals man. and doing all, like they were telling you in real time, yo, this shit is fucked up. Like we, oh, we can't stay, we're not doing this with you. So the idea of being selective in memory also means we can be selective in which of the policies we want to uphold. And I hear people say, well, there's no way they could take, a take us back to slavery. Well, why not? What? Why, why couldn't they? I mean, and we got to remember that what we're trying to create, and I said this yesterday, we're trying to create a freedom that we believe in, but we ain't never seen, not in this right. world. 
We're we trying to create something we've never seen before. They're just replicating what they've already done. So and when they're replicating it grounded and motivated by a history that said, well, we're anti-abortion because that means black women will be able to kill their babies so that we can't enslave them. And black people and black women will be able to, and black men, which we did anyway, but will be able to prevent getting pregnant in the first place. So two things come to mind. And again, this is so, this is one reason, another of the many reasons I'm glad you uh, are on this side of it this morning for us. You know, the Fugitive Slave Act, because the people mm. have been mistaken this or you know, when, when slavery is brought up. Don't compare abortion to slavery. Don't compare. No, no, no. Everybody calm down. What you need is somebody who understands how the law works in this in this field of violence to explain this to you. The idea that if you and I escaped from Louisiana or, or Delaware or Maryland and got to New York or Pennsylvania, they could come get us and drag us back. And we're already seeing that shovel mouth bastard governor of Texas and the people of Mississippi saying in Louisiana, y'all better not try to leave and terminate a pregnancy and come back. In other words, I wonder if that's one of the things I want to ask you about in terms of the parallels between the lead up to the U.S. Civil War in the, in the 19th mm. century and what we're seeing now. Because if I understand what you're saying correctly, this system not only is not broken. This is them trying, as you say, to re-exert themselves after a series of losses that we might refer to as the civil rights movement. And they were like, oh, okay, it's going to take us some time. So 50 years later, they, but the second part of it is this question of control that you, man, I love how you, how you phrase that. This question of white topia, which has as part of its value system, this patriarchy, this idea that oh. we're going to control our, you know, white men's women as well so that contraception all of these right i wonder if you could help us understand for folks who may not grasp they say abortion how is this not about abortion no behind abortion behind contraception behind lbgtq rights behind uh same-sex marriage behind interracial marriage is this idea of a right to privacy but is there a right to privacy uh is there a right to privacy, uh, Professor Daniels' favorites? Is there a right to privacy when Alito and them say it ain't in the document? And if people say we can't return to slavery, maybe the only thing that might make that a little bit more difficult is that there is in writing a 13th Amendment with a huge carve out. <laughs> so, I mean, could you help us <laughs> think about me? He was like, I have a right to privacy. Alito is like, find it. <laughs> I mean, help us understand in terms of control. What you talking about? This whiteopia. What is this vision of controlling people, bodies? Can't hear you. Can't hear you. How are you gonna have a right to? Can you hear me now? I had to switch microphones in my yes. yes. How you gonna have a right to privacy when your right to humanity is questioned? Like, like you don't like we're we're acting where we're and evaluating these mm. opinions kind of as if our right to humanity has been a settled question. And it is not, it is not a settled question. And so having a, an understanding of the frameworks that that create a space for these laws to, to come, I think that's important. And so I really appreciate the question. Um, there's this, you, you talked before yesterday about substantive due process versus procedural due Help process. Help us, yes, please. And and so procedure, there, there are these two concepts in the law. They're super, super boring. So Professor Carr, you're gonna have to help me make them. No, I love it. This is, this is see, this this is that law school we all getting for free. Larie, we are going to bust the concept of the academy. All these niggas yes. run out, got these big jobs. No, 
Wipe it out. Teach us today, this morning. I just need to say, Laurie Daniel Favors is the uh, head of the Center for Law and Social Justice at Medgar yes. College. Yes. She's a whole ass lawyer. <laughs> Radio right. is the her side gig. Her everyday gig is fighting for social justice through the legal uh, realm, which she uh, and Dr. Carr, of course, has a law degree. As well, so yeah, I just, but, I, but I don't practice. That's, I don't practice, but you know the stuff. All right, I'm yeah, gonna, well, th then, no, thank, thank you, Karen. And that's yeah, because there may be there are a lot of new people, people are coming every day in here. So just know that when I called you that, it's not only the honorific that is earned by your practice, but as we used to say, the only reason we call each other these titles anyway is some white folk try to stop us as the equivalent of a driver's license. Like, no, back up, back up. So, yes, go ahead, please, Prof. <laughs> you, you were about to explain something to do, Prof. I think that's where we were. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so there's this there's this concept called procedural due process, and that's like you know, Dr. Carr, if I'm going to sue you and win a, a lawsuit that that requires you to pay me money, you got to know that I sued you, right? You have to have notice of the yes. lawsuit procedurally. Were you notified? Did the notice make sure that you knew? Well, Larie's going to be in courtroom B on Tuesday the fifth, uh, and she's suing you, so you you should show up because if you don't show up, she's going to win automatically by a default judgment. So you should know this procedurally you have been notified if you choose not to show up well she gonna win just because you didn't show up that's the procedure the procedure says you must respond and if you respond then we can have this tussle if you don't respond she's going to win by default that's yeah. procedure that's not really looking at the merits i could have sued dr carr for being you know he should be blonde and he's actually got black hair and i'm right. going i mean it, there's nothing that does, has nothing to do with the substance of what the lawsuit is about that's just the procedure the substance of what the lawsuit is about is something we deal with through, through what we understand to be substantive due process. This isn't the procedure, whether you got the proper notice in the proper amount of time. This is what is the meritorious nature of the claims you are making? Does Larie have a right to claim that Dr. Carr should not be blonde or that he should be, that he should change the color? She doesn't have a right to that. There's no substantive merit to her claim. And the idea of the right to privacy, I want you guys to imagine a world where who you have sex with is determined by law. And because this was the case for our gay brothers and sisters, that who they had sex with in cases in states like Texas was a matter of legal ruling. There were people who introduced legislation who thought it made sense to legislate who you could have sex with in the privacy of your own home. And, and there were questions about, well, I'm in my own home. I'm not out, you know, doing a, a you know, a reveal on the front lawn. I'm in my house. I'm in my house. This ain't a burlesque show. This ain't a drag show down Main Street. This is my house. I have a right to privacy in my own home. That was a question. Well, do you have a right to privacy? Do you? I mean, substantively, do, do you, you actually have a, does the state have the ability to determine what happens? Your home is supposed to be your castle, but how far into the castle can I, the state, reach to determine what's happening there and whether or not it's okay? So the idea that you wanted to have birth control, maybe I'm married, I am, and my husband and I, we want to, we don't want to have no more kids. Right. We decided we don't, we got enough. We good. God bless the children. We good. We don't need any more. So we want to have birth control, maybe a condom, maybe the pill or the IUD. There was a question about whether or not in the privacy of my own home, I could engage in, in birth control practices and policies because it was a question. Do I have a right to do this? But, it, but, do you, do you, but, but if you don't want to have any more children, just stop having sex. 
Well, because that would be the Christian nationalist. Exactly. In other words, do you have a right to desire? Do you have a right to your own to experience your own body in the ways you want to experience your own body? That's the deeper thing. You know what I'm saying? I just want to have sex. I, we want to have sex. I don't want to have a child. So I'm gonna yeah, right. Exact. Come on now. You want sex for pleasure. You're right. <laughs> I can't have sex. There's no pleasure in sex. No Not in the Christian nationalist. Woo, you better. Mm -mm. Now, see, this is what y'all gonna learn about Amy Comey Barrett. But you know that, that explains why this country's so effed up. No question. I just had to say that. That's Come on why, now. That's why it's so effed up in this country. But watch this. And even if it's just one person, you better not touch yourself. Let's get to the deeper issues here. This, these people are effed up. No question. <laughs> Don't touch yourself. But help us. Could you just, as you continue talking about it, you said a state. So the state of Texas, well, can't the federal government do something about it? Isn't there a law in the federal government that says you have a, a right to privacy? Well, you know, we have these laws that we've created, Dr. Carr. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, laws that prevent certain things, laws that, are, you know, we used to be able to be racist. Now there are laws that say we can't be anymore. And, and the question is, who gets the, who, who wins that debate? Who, if I'm the state of Texas or if I'm the state of Connecticut and I say pregnant people should not have access to abortion or, or, or birth control because you shouldn't be having joy during sex. Sex is not about joy. It's about procreation only, thus saith the Lord. Um, and so the question, <laughs> the white Lord, uh, and so the question becomes really, it becomes a question of whose view of what is appropriate in the world actually is going to have merit in the eyes of the court. And when you're in a situation where you have determined that there is no right to privacy, because that's what the world was. The world was, there was no right to privacy. We could come into your home if we suspected you were having same gender loving sex. We could come into your home if we suspected you were using birth control uh, to allow yourselves to engage in all that fuddy-duddy sex fun stuff that you kids always talk about that we think is completely inappropriate. And if we are going to say that you do have a right to privacy, then the state, the state's interest stops at your front door. And the state can no longer come into your bedroom because you now have, if the courts agree, they, they basically imputed into the law a right to privacy, a right that says in my home, I can have, I can love whomever I want to love. In my home, I can use birth control if I want to use birth control. But the ability to control what's in your home is a right that for Black people has not been very long held. But the, ability, the federal court or the state court? Say, what's your question? Is it the federal court or the state court? Well, at the federal, the court, the state court in Texas was the, the state in Texas was the, the, the entity that was pursuing the idea that you could not have, you could not love who you wanted to love in your home. The state in Connecticut was the entity that was pursuing a rule that said, because these were states' rights, the state in Connecticut is pursuing a rule that said you are not allowed to use birth control. So then the federal government comes in and says, well, now, wait a minute. We're going to let a, set a floor. We're going to set a, a base level of rights that you are going to be able to have. There's going to be a base level of rights that the courts are going to infer into this right to privacy. Did, and that, that's right. No, and no, that no. base level of rights uh, that we infer, I and mean, through that base level of rights where we draw this right to privacy, through the right to privacy, you have the right to use birth control. That's right. Through the right to privacy, you have the right to raise your kids as you want to, That's under right. what religious practices you want. Through the right to privacy, you have the ability to marry interracially, to marry in the same gender. That's through the right to privacy. But Dr. Carr, the right to privacy is not a part of the constitutional framework. Right. And that's that's where, that's where we're going. I mean, it, it, when they set up this criminal enterprise, as we know, they set up a federal 
structure that was basically a compromise between the various former colonies, as we know, 13 former colonies, British colonies. They had, and as they expanded to absorb the former Spanish colonies, the former French colonies, that federal framework had at its heart a tension between the subgroups, not even, I shouldn't even say subgroups, should I? Because they don't see themselves as subgroups. That's right. Between the states, which is basically like individual countries who have entered into this pact of federation, United States. And so there's a federal framework, but then each one of these little places is operating with its own government, its own constitution, its own courts, its own governor, its own legislature. And so that tension, as we know, federalism is between the states. And now, now the thing that holds the whole thing together, which is why I love when I was having conversations with my students, I said, don't move so fast past that concept of nation state. Mm. The nation is not real. We don't have common identity. We speak a common language because of settler colonialism. We don't have common memories. We don't have, you know, they try to stick a flag on it, give you an anthem. But the nation concept is a cultural concept. The state is the rules. But in that state concept, there's a federal concept. So the state of Texas, which started as a criminal enterprise trying to steal from Mexico, a third of Mexico, they want their own country. They got in trouble and the United States absorbed them, but they have never, Texas is its own concept of nation. But anyway, I, I went through all that because as you're explaining to us, when Texas says, uh, we're going to come in your house. You have a same-sex uh, marriage or you wearing contraceptives. No, in, in Connecticut, contraceptives, no. Okay, as Ralph Bunch used to say, the Negro, us, we're almost like a special ward of the federal government, the Supreme Court. Here come the feds in and say, you know what? That's wrong. Why? Because we do have a 14th Amendment. And that 14th Amendment says that there should be equal protection under the law and due process, as you explained, something due process, almost a joke. But I'm thinking now about, again, back to before the end of enslavement. Here they are in the upper Mississippi, what becomes Minnesota, Dredd and Harriet Scott get married. They come to Missouri and they say, okay, you in a state now where slavery is legal. So therefore you are slave. And they like, no, nah. so they sue. There's a Missouri compromise of 1820. There's an 1850 compromise. Cause as these people come West across this continent, fighting the indigenous people, trying to take their whole land, they're putting in new states. But in order to keep the unholy compromise together, they got to let some of these states come in as slave states because these people in the South making money off us. And the northern states, they don't want slavery because they feel like they can make more money in a deal with the South who's making products that they export. They do. And they want white people there. But now they got a crisis. Why? Because them people in the South have never and a lot of people in the North, too. But in the South, they have never, ever abandon the dream that one day the whole thing might be a slave country and if it can't be a slave country you will never end slavery down here in other words so the best you can do best we're gonna do is have a truce i want to say this when when tommy comes out in dread scott in 1857 and says i don't care where you are black woman black man if you escape slavery and get to a state that says it's legal the federal government doesn't have to respect that state's laws. You have, because you are black, to your point earlier, you're not human. You don't have any rights. Anybody in these, any of these states have to respect because we just make the decision almost like, you know, there's a, there's a national blackness. Now, fast forward to here we are now. It took us a hundred years, it took us a civil war in a hundred years. But as African people, we fought our way out of that arrangement 
with the assistance of a federal government, to your point, as the world changed, realized it couldn't keep running that out. Y'all are dragging us down. So they went to those same amendments, 13th Amendment of Boston Slavery, except for a crime, 14th Amendment, due process, 15th Amendment, right to vote, and says, you know, there are places in this federal constitution where we can protect these people, because if we don't, this whole thing is going to dissolve because them racists is never going to abandon their little state ideas. So here we are today. It took them 50 years to regroup. When Alito and Thomas and Barrett and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Roberts say none of these rights are in the federal constitution and the states get to do what they want. So are you saying that now Texas can say not only can't you terminate a pregnancy? You don't, you can't have condoms. Not only that, gay people can't get married. Not only that, if we can get enough votes in our legislature, we don't even like black people and white people getting married. Are you saying that any of it? Because now once that federal frame, once the once they say in the feds, if it ain't written in here, we interpret that to mean it isn't here. Can these states now pretty much do whatever the hell they want? I mean, or am I overstating it? I'm sure I am. I'm sure someone out there wants to say, you're being so hyperbolic. Yeah. Everything's up for grabs. Is it? Everything is up for grabs. Because once you have, I saw Michael Harriet uh, retweeted the Supreme Court decision. And he said, <clears throat> TLDR, too long, didn't read. Ain't no precedent, bitch. Like, ain't no precedent. Like, what you gonna do? We just decided we disagree. It was wrongly decided. Here's what they said, Dr. Carr. <clears throat> Casey and Roe were wrongly decided. It What's going to stop them from saying Brown versus Board of Education wrongly decided? What's to stop them? What's going to stop them? I mean, I because technically it was wrongly decided, right? I mean, the 14th Amendment says equal protection. So if you want to have segregation, that just means you have to make separate equal. That's right. Which requires some funding allocations and, and investments, which was the other argument, right? It wasn't that people were, people, we often forget, people weren't just fighting for integration. They was fighting for the equal. Like, Come on, I, come on Prof. Let, let, let's, let's go down this rabbit hole for 30 seconds. Yeah, I shouldn't have to pass six white schools to get to the one black school. Make it equal. Give us the Make money. it equal, which, which is actually, actually, let's go down that rabbit hole just for a second, because as we both know, as many of us know, that was the initial NAACP strategy. Because they said, you know what? We will go to court, force them to make separate equal. But when they realize they can't make it equal, equal protection means you got to integrate. And of course, they pushed back. I mean, Charles Houston and them are saying, look, that will cost too much money because you know how many school districts there are in this country? We don't have the kind of muscle to have lawyers making these cases all the time. They'll adjust the budgets from year to year. They'll wear us down. And then they switch over to the integration. But Pauli Murray, genius, Pauli Murray's thing when she was in law school, she told Spotswood Robinson and them boys at Howard. She said, look, the 14th Amendment is the way to go with this. They can't. She said, I predict that they're going to overturn segregation in 25 years. This was in when she was in law school, I guess, in the early in the mid 40s. It didn't even take 25 years. And, and then she collected her $10 from Spotswood Robinson, who argued Brown versus board and then turned around and said, and while we're at it, I'm going to look for gender in the 14th Amendment. And in a fatal mistake, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who knew Polly Murray, who used Polly Murray's memos the same way that Spotswood Robinson used them, instead of going for the 14th Amendment, which Polly Murray said we should go, you went off looking for a privacy right and all this stuff, you know what I'm saying? And people who love RBG never forget that she wrote herself on the Supreme Court bench that perhaps Roe was premature. 
they should have had this fight in the States. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I, I know we're going down the wheels a little bit, but Larry, I really think this is so valuable because a lot of people don't understand that if you spent two weeks in law school, none of this is a surprise. They're making it up as they go along. And they say, oh, that couldn't be that simple. No, go ask me. Go ahead, please. <laughs> It's that simple. And, and I think part of the reason we don't want it to be that simple is because that then triggers uh, a necessary response, right? Mm. Because you, you have to realize how well organized they are, how long they've been planning for this. And, uh, you know, I, and just the fact that they, they have been investing in laying out the foundation of repeating what, again, as I said, what they've already done. It's a lot easier to do something you've already done than it is to create something you've never actually seen. Can we can we spend a little time there? Um, because as we see uh, Susan Collins and others, they lied to me. And the, I can't believe Gorsuch. They and they got you know. Someone said, "Can they be sued for perjury?" Because under oath, they said that you know Roe v. Wade was law, and they had no intention on. Oh, but this has been the plan all along, which is why I mean I can imagine the giggles and the laughs right now among them, like. Mitch McConnell. Yep. When I said I wanted to make Obama one term president, didn't succeed at that. But we had another plan. And and it's the planning. It's the planning. It's the Chinese hundred year plan. It's the planning that we as people come from planners. You don't build pyramids and, and obelisks and all that without amazing plans. That's right. So now let's plan. What does that look like? Is it too late? You know, do we have other plans? I know we do. I'm being actually rhetorical because Dr. Carr has given us, I mean, uh, W.B. Du Bois had a hundred year plan that we're picking up the, the mantle of. There've always been plans. We keep getting interrupted as Lurie would say, you know, we get interrupted on our way, you know. Um, so what does that look like today to you two? What does our planning entail? Go ahead, bro. You say Coogee Chagalia, sound seem to me you got some ideas on this. <laughs> so, so when I think about Coogee Chagalia, one of the really most powerful, I think, weapons uh, that made enslavement so successful was the mind game. And I often tell the story, like I have this analogy that I use about baby elephants and elephants are extraordinarily intelligent creatures. Um, and if you don't believe me, just look at the story of the elephant that uh, engaged in some warfare, some anti-human warfare, and killed somebody, and then came to the funeral and mussed up the body again. <laughs> they have great, you know, when we say an elephant never forgets, that, that that's tied to something. Yeah. And I often use an analogy of, you know, you have a herd of elephants. They speak elephant language. They got elephant rules. They have a social structure, a governing structure. They, they, they know how to properly elephant, and they got rules for what happens when you don't. But if a baby elephant, or let's say a teen elephant, is captured by a poacher, and take mm. it to the circus. They're going to beat that elephant. They're going to engage in such physical trauma and torture, psychological and physical warfare against that elephant. That elephant, which knows elephant language, the rules, the norms, and, and how to be a proper elephant, when that elephant has a child, it might tell the child about the life of a baby of an elephant. It, it might tell the child the memories it had of running through the wild, wild open plains with the other elephants and talking elephant and, and gathering food for themselves and what works. It might have. It might try to teach that child, but that child has no independent memory of running through those open plains. That mm. baby elephant has no independent memory of speaking elephant or of engaging in any of the self-governing Kuji Chagalia activities outside of what its owner allows it. 
And so that when that baby elephant has another child, go down 10 generations of elephants, we're gonna kind of remember, well, you know, great, 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 great grandmama right. used to run through something big. It was an open plane. I don't know if it's the plane in the sky. I ain't never been in an open plane. There is a, a, a real intentionality behind the fact that we have lost our ever-loving minds. That was not by that, that was not by accident, it was by design. It was a very necessary part of the enslavement experience. So for me, and this is something that I, I've just sort of always given my life to, the idea that we have to remember who we are is prominent in anything that we do, but not in a sort of remember who you are. And here are the five black history facts that you need to get through your day today. Right. I mean, a remembering. That's right. Because we don't know that we created those things. We don't no. know that we created science, man. We have absolutely, the what, probe what? has been there too long. Now, what? when we come to spaces like Nubia, we can remember. We might have some inkling, but you talk to a group of third graders who are black about being African. I ain't no African. I ain't no African booty scratch. That's true. Because they don't want it. But you give me, give me a summer with them kids, uh, reminding them of who they are in a space where we can control the curriculum, we can control the environment, the songs, the music, the energy. And I've seen it because I've done it. By the end of the summer, they'll be singing, I'm an African. I'm an African. How about that? I know what's happening. I mean, because it's all it takes. You better put that dead prayers in there. M1 stick man. We remember that. We just old enough to remember that. No, but I mean, and, and by the way, you all, that you know that listen with several ears because I think that's coming, right? As Kane said, it's coming. I'm coming. So just know, just keep watch this space. This is the new normal. But prof, uh this 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 question of so you say are you saying it's not enough to have an elephant on a t-shirt? Or it's not enough to have make songs and movies with some elephants in them? Or worse still, it's not enough maybe to make a musical where you make an elephant out of the trainer? I'm sorry, uh, Hamilton. Uh, but in other words, <laughs> it's not enough to just celebrate <laughs> having a few ele elephants scattered around as CEOs and interns. You talking about something different? Because people say, well, I remembered. Well, I got some red, black, and green. in my You saying look, so it's going to take a little bit more than that? Because <laughs> we got a lot of that now. We can even buy it in the uh, Ralph Lauren. Got a whole uh, elephant series with two elephant, uh, historically elephant colleges and universities. <laughs> and for $1,000, you can buy elephant uh, cardigan, uh, elephant ties and, and, and dresses. I mean, that's not what, that's not what you're telling me. That's not I think there's a substantive difference between oh. <laughs> the trappings and adornment of culture okay. and the reculturation of our mind. <laughs> so okay. All right, I just wanted to be clear because people say, oh, that's cool. I can do that. Rah, rah. I think okay. until we're at the point where we as the descendants of Africans no longer have American dreams, there is always going to be room for us to engage in a reclamation of our mind. And yeah, a friend of mine has this song. Go back to that. I mean, yeah. don't, don't, don't split. What does it mean not to have American dreams? Help me, please. So y'all know that joy. <laughs> And, and Eljoy, there's this thing, we, she and I had a conversation years ago, and she was talking about the danger of seeing yourself through the eyes of other people. And so long as we evaluate Blackness, so long as we evaluate Black people, so long as we evaluate Africa, our histories, our languages, and our cultures through the eyes of whiteness, which is to say through the eyes of a people who intentionally, the same way they intentionally infiltrated the Capitol with all the plans and intentionality that went behind it, who intentionally created a vision of us that was designed to further their white nationalist interests. So when we see ourselves through those eyes and we evaluate ourselves through those eyes, through the eyes of whiteness, 
of course we're, we enculturate anti-Blackness. Of course we have a difficulty wanting to connect with Africa at the beginning of the summer until we've spent some time excavating the white way of thinking out of our mind and replacing it with some, as uh, Denzel Washington says in The Great Debaters, are reclaiming our natural, our natural mind. Yes. But I think until we are able to scale what's happening in the Nubia space, and, and scale it out so that there are not just an there's not just an institution where we're able to have this deprogramming process, but they are as present in our community. And we talked about this before as AA for for Alcoholics Anonymous. Ooh. Same concept. If we were to have everywhere where Black people are an AA for our addiction to white supremacy, which I think Nubia is a function of, yes, because it's helping us to reclaim our space and to reclaim our mind. I think then we we have. A pathway towards freedom but but professor daniel favors i mean we, we we built this country uh uh they owe us uh and, and when are you moving to africa since you love africa so much or am i mistaken some help i mean with all this talk you sound with them hotels what are you, what are you talking about <laughs> well, this I, is where you're romanticizing africa let me put it in the language of some of our colleagues and friends who are academics you're romanticizing africa Yes, I, I myself am fighting in an anti-racist way. I mean, help, help. I'm confused now, as students might say. So what's funny is I actually just talked with Brian. I was like, you know, the kids' passports, they about to expire. We, we jump on that. Got to <laughs> jump on it. Look, look, look. While the passports are still worth some, because we know this same court last month with that damn ruling where they let these federal agents go over to Canada and come back, they said, look, our white supremacy is global and while we're chipping away in that other decision this week at the civil side you ain't gonna sue the police because he didn't do no miranda warning that's the point of entry to come over on the criminal side and say we ain't got to mirandize you either so i'm not sure that the passports will protect us much longer if they decide you can't leave we can ask paul and se robeson about that <laughs> they just take your stuff you know what i'm saying i mean these people playing for keep shop but anyway but but to the point though but we built this country uh why shouldn't we be proud so, I mean, don't thing. ask no Native Americans. I mean, like Richard Pryor say, shut up, fool. You want them mad at us too? But anyway, we <laughs> built this country. <laughs> um, I had this uh, a colleague when I was in law school, a, a Jewish brother. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, diversity and whatnot. And he's like, well, you know, Louis, I'm all for diversity. But like I learned in Hebrew school, I can't, I can't really help you if I haven't taken care of me. It's not, you know, it's nothing wrong. Like, I believe in diversity. Well, you say those first six words, what I learned in, in Hebrew, Hebrew school. school. Oh, so in other words, I can be in this, but I ain't of this. I'm in here negotiating for what's best for my people and by extension, other people. But if you think I'm coming here for my memories, okay, maybe you answered that first part. We ain't got to go back to Africa. Africa's in us. <laughs> and, and you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and we might want to go, but what the hell? What I love about what he, our conversation revealed for me was that because his people, had decided that trusting the Nazis to educate their children was a mistake. Ooh, come on now. They wanted to do. Come on now. And, they there, and, and, and this is crazy because there wasn't universal accord on that principle. No, there was not. No, there was not. That is fascinating. We don't study that enough. People say, well, you had sellouts. Everybody got sellouts in their group. That's right. But they That's did right. come to that read like, when they end up like, what the hell? Oh, and it creeped because did Hitler, was it a coup? Oh, these were elections he came to power in, right? Okay, I just wanted to be clear. And there were some Jewish people who voted for Hitler. I don't want to get too deep into that. But, you know, when you think you can collaborate with somebody to save yourself, I'm sorry, y'all. We see what's happening in the New York State Legislature, for example, with this progressive group that's pushing. Didn't they, didn't, uh, what's his name, the Speaker of the New York Assembly? 
refused to bring to the floor a bill for renewable energy when the Democrats had to vote. This just happened. It was in today's times. But the whole point is some of these people are saying we have to go along and we have to. And guess what? The people are beginning to say, nah, yeah. nah. Uh, it's important. And the reason I think the Hebrew school model is so, yes. I can't really talk about the New York state legislature right now. It's too, uh, there's too much frustration and hurt. And I got to mind my business, all of them. Uh, <laughs> right. Understood. Understood. I gotta, no, but, 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 I'm just making the point that. Yes. You know, <laughs> I got to say thing, yes on that. We're we going to say less. Mass capture is one thing. When you talk about the Hebrew schools, mass capture, but elite capture is something quite different. And we know we can't mistake the success of a handful of group That's of right. people from an oppressed group for the success of the whole group. That's right. So you, I think what maybe, and let me, let me, let me, let me say less as you continue in this model of how we can, as you say, bring to scale, which is what we're doing here in part, but now in this next phase, what can we learn? From that yeah. model that you're talking about, the Hebrew school model, for example. I, I think one of the things that's important to learn is that the only way that, and I don't like comparing struggles, right? Because like what your people no. want to do with my people, like we, that ain't what this is about. But there's solidarity. We can learn lessons from each other. We're not, right. you know, it ain't no competition of uh, oppression Olympics, but we can learn from each other. So, I mean, this is important, I think, what you're about to lay out for us. And, and when Hebrew schools were first created, like in my mind, they were kind of just something that always existed. And for people who don't know, Hebrew mm. schools are schools that Jewish kids go to maybe a couple of days a week after school, maybe all day on Saturday, depending on the schedule. And, and this became really significant for me, Dr. Carr, when, let me, remind me to talk about Savannah in a minute. I'm going to talk about Savannah, Georgia. I got to write that down. Um, but in Hebrew school, you go, you know, from the time you're like in kindergarten up until, you know, bat mitzvah and beyond, you're learning your, your language you know, the Hebrew language, the, the philosophy, the culture, the history, the challenges that your people have gone through, not just in this country, but internationally from the time you had became Jewish people. And one of the things he talked about was that basically Hebrew school ensures that by the time you're an 18 year old Jewish child, you're not just going to college to be a banker. You're going to college to learn how to be a banker who's going to create good banking and economic products for Jewish people. On, you're man. going to learn, you're not just going to, to law school to be a, a lawyer. You're going to law school with the an 18 year or you know an entire childhood of training that has prepared you to understand that your people have expectations of you. There is a value system here, and you are going to have to adhere to it. You're going to have to conduct your affairs such that you are contributing to the whole. That is an, a value that is taught through the Hebrew school experience. And so my friend, uh, this Jewish gentleman, he doesn't have to decide. He didn't ask it. Ain't nobody saying it. Well, you gonna go back to Israel? How about that? Oh, oh, I could stay here on Wall Street, or I could go to Larie's community in Bed-Stuy and set up an institution. I could be anywhere because I know who the hell I am. Right. So and I, I don't support have... candidates to make sure that Israel is protected. That's right. And we're looking at each other like, see, them Nigerians don't like you. What? What do y'all? That's right. That's right. So Literally, the blood of Nigeria runs in all our veins. The blood of Ghana, the blood. It doesn't matter. Israel wasn't there 100 years ago as a country, but the concept you're bringing. But but what do you say to people uh, who would say, Prof, well, there's no such thing as Africans. There's no such thing. It wasn't no, you, you ain't no African. I mean, like you said, I mean, how do you deal with that? Because in the case of the, uh, of the Hebrew schools, the language they're learning, Hebrew, is a language that they associate with a culture, yes. with the people that yes. have broke the Torah. Now we got Medunetra, but then we say, you ain't no, you, you didn't do no ancient Egyptian, your people from West Africa. I mean, how do you get past that? 
So one of the things that, and, and this is why uh, Savannah is important. Yes, ma'am. Years ago, Brian and I were trying to get married someplace black. Um, you know, <laughs> we black as hell. So we were trying to get married. We wanted to go to Gullah Geechee land. And, and, but everywhere we was going, like there was no Gullah Geechee land owned by the Gullah Geechee. And I wasn't going to have my oh. button on no land called plantation. So we, it, we ended up going to Jamaica and just bringing a very close group of friends together. But while yeah. we're in Savannah, Georgia, looking for a place. We're in the middle of, you know, beautiful, you know, urban black portion, not urban, but the, the black portion of Savannah. It's clearly, it's a black portion of Savannah. And we're driving through the black community and all of a sudden, Dr. Carr, out of the, the out of nowhere, it's, it's buildings that look stereotypically like our buildings. There's a lawn that just appears. It just appeared. We're just driving. I'm like, where all this grass come from? It's like a lawn. And I see just a big, beautiful lawn and the lawn is expansive. I can and, see this. It's like you making a movie. I can. That's why I got my eyes closed. I can see this. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and sit back on the line because you know you got some properties that are small enough that you know the, the building has to be right up to where the the side the grass meets the sidewalk. I mean, this building was set back far, like far, so. You got wide lawn and it's far back, and there are Hebrew letters on the building. And I was like, uh oh, uh oh. In uh -oh. Savannah, Georgia? Tread lightly, tread lightly. I'm scared where you're going. I was so impressed because it taught me that it does not matter where the Jewish community put their foot. They were going to center the business of being about the needs of meeting their own people's needs. They were going, it didn't matter if you were in black Savannah. It don't matter where they are in the world. When I lived in the Dominican Republic, Jewish communities in the Dominican Republic making sure they had, oh no, you don't have a Hebrew school. Oh no, because, and, and when Hebrew school first began, Rebecca Gratz and the, the Jewish women who were a part of creating this institution, they did so out of a recognition that you had Jews coming from all over the world, speaking languages, Polish, speaking all types of different languages without knowing their rituals, didn't know their culture, didn't know their rules. So she and the other women <clears throat> who were nurturing these children created institutions to teach the Polish Jews, the, the uh, Ukrainian Jews, the Russian Jews, all of whom had Jewish in, culture, in common, but different national cultures, different national identities. They helped to solidify a Jewish identity. So yes, we've got Nigerians, we've got Black Americans, we've got Jamaicans, we've got Haitians, and no, we don't have a Torah. We don't have a religion. So we have to think about what is a common experience? That's or something that is common to all of us around which we might have the ability to organize. It's not necessarily our language. It's not necessarily, you know, the, the, the religious practices. But is there something that we all have uh, in common around which we could organize a desire to invest in ourselves and to heal ourselves? If only there were something that infected all of us that perhaps we might use as a center pole around which we could create a new way of being. I don't know. You, you mean beyond our common oppression? Maybe. No. But I think our common oppression is a damn good place to start. Well, it's a good place to start, but if it becomes anchored in the trauma, that's where I think we hit the brick wall. Yes. And this is why I popped in. Um, Kay Kennedy in the chat said, what is the everyday practice of an elephant? Or what is the everyday practice mm. of a black person? And as you were talking, you know, again, Jews for time immemorial have first a doctrine, they have a book, thousands of years, y'all say what you want about it. And even the Holocaust was less than a 10 year interruption and it wasn't global. Yep. Even though the ideology might've been global. And in many ways, Jews today can 
walk into whiteness, as many have, right? Or leverage whiteness. Leverage whiteness. I think it's a very critical distinction. I mean, we look at these cases, we've been talking about these Supreme Court cases. We have to understand that oppressed people who find common cause often struggle together. And of course, there's a long history, pause. There's a 20th century history of Jewish people and people of African descent struggling in this country against oppression. And you begin to see that fracture after the civil rights legislation in the 60s. And of course, the case that we all talk about and know about, of course, the Baki case, affirmative action, you see some of the people in the Jewish community line up against black people because they can leverage whiteness. Because that's a floating signifier. So we don't need affirmative action. Why? Because you got a cultural grounding. It's almost like a perpetual immigrant community. In other words, renewing the sense of cultural grounding and then using trauma as a focusing, a focal point to apply that cultural grounding can result in sustaining your group identity as a political tool. It's almost like you never assimilated. In other words, Jews never assimilated, even though whiteness is something you can use as a tool. In fact, the running joke, I used to, you know, hear my Jewish friends around, you know, I worked for the school district for years in Philadelphia, and they were talking, we, we all get the Jewish holidays off. And I remember one time, we talked, I said, what is Passover? So the kid asked, what is Passover? And the lady said, Passover is, they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. The whole point is, <laughs> but the idea is, they tried to kill us is the trauma. But the us they tried to kill is not the identity of the people they tried to kill. And when we ground our thing in the oppression, when the oppression leaves, we don't have a group identity. The difficult, I think we can't have a language. Let me, let me ask this. You know, I'm wearing diaspora. We're in Nubia. Yes. Um, you know, it's, oh. not, it's not enough for us to, oh. you know, as, as you often say, Dr. Carr and Marie, you know, the 400-year interruption can't be our starting point, which is why 1619 is problematic in terms of dating. No, 1619 is, is it's not it's not a rooting point. No. We go back, we go back to Nubia, to Kemet, to Timbuktu, to Mali, to all of that. And even now modern Africa is colonized. So there's white Santa and white Jesus when you go to these different places and and or Islam, which is fine. Most of us who were brought here in chains were Muslim. I think we have an opportunity right now to a remember who we were, immerse ourselves in our history thousands of years before there was a Bible. Saying something. Hundreds of thousands of years. Hundreds of thousands of years before there was a Bible. And then we have, because we're creative people, we remix everything. We make everything delicious, including chitlins. Let's imagine the world that we want to live in that centers humanity first and then us. What does that look like? Do we have the ability to do that? Are we, I mean, how long are we away from, you know, knocking the crust off of our DNA and our epigenetics? Are we? I think it requires a discipline that we have demonstrated before, but not. To what you raised, Larry, not to scale. So the Hebrew schools, as you mentioned, as you described, there are, there's a curriculum, there's a process, and then there are moments of ritual that reinforce and reinscribe the reasons. You know, so now we had vacation Bible school. I know we had iterations of that in enslavement, and our first nation can 
particularly after the 60s, and up to now have these indigenous schools. And we had the African Center School movement right there in Brooklyn, the East. In other words, but the difference between our movements and those other movements and their parallel movements on the continent of Africa, I think about the, the, the liberation schools in East Africa during the anti-apartheid movement where they're in exile in Tanzania, Namibia, thinking about in the Caribbean, you know, and not to mention the whole concept of Maroonage, but ultimately for African people, our remembering is going to require a creation, as Karen says, of something that never existed. This is what Howard French is talking about. You, you, you never had a continent of wide identity. And I you know, remember, of course, we as we know in the 60s and 70s, there was a huge debate. The Seven Pan-African Congress there in Tanzania, they're saying, should there be a pan-African language? In other words, whatever other languages we speak, the various abonics of the diaspora, the languages of Africa, can we come up with a single language or two or three languages that everybody can learn? We can teach our children so that all the Africans can talk to one another. People push back and say, that's impossible. The pushback to that is, okay, if it's impossible, why are we all having this conversation in English and French <laughs> and Spanish? It's not impossible. So the, the, they settle on Kiswahili and Hausa initially. Kiswahili continues to rise, which is why many HBCUs, if they teach one African language, it's Swahili. You can learn some Swahili. And then the, in the diaspora, we pick that up. Now, here's the thing. He said, why y'all talking about ancient Egypt? Sheikh Ante Job said, the role of Egypt in Africa should be the same as the role of Greece in Western civilization. The English are not Greeks. The, the Germans are not Greeks. But all y'all got a junior Latin society and learning Greek in high school and college. Why? Because that is a grounding space for their, for their culture, the, the concept of Western society. I saw it as a background to, to, to bring it to this point. We can do it, but the amount of collective labor it re required not individual labor we got some hella brilliant individuals they work at the universities they don't work at mega Everest and howard they're at harvard and yale and stanford and they write books that themselves two people in their family and 30 other people read and they celebrate how brilliant they are in fact skipper gates has now decided that oxford is going to produce an ebonics dictionary isn't that nice to add to the other 15 that are old? but it, since it ain't since it ain't oxford it's not legit but we could do it. We're doing it here. But it's to borrow from Jeremiah Wright, not Barack Obama. Yeah, there's a lot of shade. We should just set aside a whole day to deal with the chocolate wonder. But at any rate, to borrow from Jeremiah Wright, we should have the audacity of that hope. What would that take, uh, Professor Daniel Favors? Because you're building that curriculum for children. That is not a little thing. That's hella hard work. Study, collaboration, thinking it ain't just some songs and some colors and some interesting people what will it take to do this deep work larry because you're doing it what does it take what does it take so you know i think frederick Douglass said it's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken adults he said men but he meant adults I no think. question and if he didn't <laughs> so, we if he didn't we do right we're right. gonna reclaim and we re re mix that um i had uh pastor mike on Mike McBride on the show earlier this week. And we ended up talking about uh, if it's part of his solution, because he does a lot with violence interruptions all across the country. He's really good at, at the work that of amassing the work of violence interrupters to, to reduce gun violence. And he talked about the fact that after we agreed it was okay to be a cussing person of faith. Um, he talked about the fact that um, we gotta fall back in love with black people. We have to tender mm. our way back to healing. We have to gentle our way back to healing. And I had Lindsay Fauntleroy on and she was talking about vulnerabilities. We have to 
create space for the curiosity, for the vulnerabilities, for the questions that, and you see this a lot in these spaces with young people. It's more difficult with adults sometimes, but we see it a lot with, with these young people in spaces with young people. And again, I go back to the example and I, I'm thinking about this little boy Idris who literally started out the summer saying, I ain't no African, don't like, don't. And by the end he's like, and then he was like, I'm from the Caribbean, I'm from the Virgin Islands. He was like, Here's how un-African I am. Idris. I am in Brooklyn by way of Virgin Islands. How old was he? How, how old was he, Larissa? Lord have mercy. To have such a strong anti-Black opinion at eight years old really speaks to the power of, of being surrounded by a white supremacist culture. Well, but it we also had, we had it, Larry. When we were eight years old, we get in fights, African booty scratcher. That's I'm, right. Isn't that something? So, right. so, okay, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. So then you start working with him, huh? Or you start working with the group, huh? Yeah, start working with the group. And, and, and I really should say, it, it, it sometimes sounds, seems like me. It's really more Brian. He's the, the educator, educator. So he's the one. He's got, the, he's got curriculum for days. He's got hundreds of, of PowerPoints. I mean, but literally sparking their imagination. So we use the, and this is just one example. There are many ways to do it. But we use the self-collective root responsibility frame. And for us, we start with whatever the lesson plan is, whatever the, the if it's adults or kids, is we start with a, a self-question about the topic, questions that any of us can answer. So we're talking about prison industrial complex. How many of y'all know somebody in jail? Everybody can raise their hand. No question. We didn't, notice we didn't say nothing about Africa. No we question. We didn't say nothing about Africa. No question. How many, how many of y'all seen somebody mess with the police or you know something happened in your community that the police was wrong? Hands no up question. and engaged. And then the hands stay up because now they want to talk. Now before no they, they didn't care nothing about you. But now Come they want to talk and they're engaged. So that's the self-question. Then we, we take them to the collective. Well, outside of your individual experience, What's happening with other people who look like you in your community with the police? And by then we're having a conversation. Now we ain't mentioned Africa once. We just talking about an issue that matters to all of us. And so then we're like, well, if this is happening to you and everybody in here, and here's the, you know, here go the statistics. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what happened. Well, how did this get started? What's the root of the issue? Which always goes back to slavery. It don't matter what the topic was. It always goes back to slavery. <laughs> right, right. You know, why you ain't got enough food, slavery? Why right. you ain't got enough housing colonization? I mean, it, it always goes back there. Isn't that something? And the most important part of the analysis is our responsibility. Now that you know, what are you doing about it? No question. And through a and that's, that can't just be one session, but, but through a series of that, through a series of that type of interrogation, we can... Be, spend the first two, three weeks not even talking about Africa. Because quite frankly, if I start talking about Africa, I'm going to turn you off. I got If I'm going to be a doctor, I got to understand the limitations of my patient. That's right. But by the time I got you in week three and we don't have these vibrant, riveting conversations, then we can talk about something like the N-word. Well, should we say the N-word? Well, what's the N-word? Well, who, who, who created the N-word? And we can have a debate about whether or not you should talk about the N-word. But then why did people create this in the first place. And then we can talk a little about that enslavement, but we can't really talk about enslavement because we've got 200,000 years of history before slavery that we got to get to before we can even really talk about how we got to these conditions. So by starting with our immediacy, immediate conditions, and then asking questions about, well, how did this happen? How did this get there? We can start back with Lucy. We can go back to the real Eve, bring them all the way through the beauty that is Africa and explain to them how uh, a, a two cradle theory of the world, and I know that's controversial for some people. No, actually, we can go find Vulan Layla Wabogo is still around. He's on the West Coast. He's the brother who actually coined that when he interviewed Sheikh Anta Joe. Mm. Joe never called it two cradle theory. He just talks about those zones of confluences, as we know. But Baba Vulan uh, Layla called it in, in Black Books Bulletin. He called, mm. there's a, in other words, but that's not controversial. 
Well, it's not to me. Um, it's not controversial to anybody because uh, <laughs> didn't didn't they just make a movie called The Norseman or The Norseman or something? Come on now. Yeah, that's it's a okay movie. when they frame it. Yeah, know? I mean, yeah, you just give somebody a hammer and let them pull some lightning from the sky and point at somebody. That would be Thor. So anyway, they can make a whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then, of course, you ease that other cradle in gently with Wakanda. And to, to your observation, you didn't start talking about Africa, but the way that you all and brought those young people in was very African and very familiar to them because they never stopped being Africans. That's right. And they can now <laughs> fall in love with Africa. No question. Because they, they fall, they fall in love with themselves. That's, That's right. right. That's right. I, I, can, I can fall in love with Africa and the understanding that we, prior to enslavement and colonization, may not have had a national identity, may not have had a national. We were not black. Right? Yeah. How about that? Come like, on. You are black. I was Hausa. You were Yoruba. Like, what is this black thing? That does, blackness only gets created again when white people need an opposite space that they can define themselves against That's and right. then can then use that as a part of enslavement. That's right. Or, 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 or watch this. You, weren't even Yoruba. Weren't even tree. Those labels are given by Europeans who need, as they always do in their worldviews, labels to put on things to move them around. The Yoruba wouldn't have recognized themselves as Yoruba. Who are you? I I am the son of, I am the daughter of, which is why it's interesting. Ray Wimbush, you said, and keep going, I interject this very quickly. In his book, The Warrior Method, he talks about this. And I remember Ray from when we were all in Nashville together. Ray said he would get young people together and he would say, do y'all use the N-word? And they would say, yeah, who you talk about? He said, okay, uh, what's your mother's name? My mother's name. Let me tell you something about that N-word. And the child would get angry. What? But I thought, you can use, not for my mama, but oh, so there are people you don't use the N-word on? So and so, why? Well, I would never, I would fight somebody. So what you realize, even then, the N-word, those values, we never stopped being, we weren't Europe or Hausa, we were the children, the brothers, the aunties, the sisters, we had relationships, them people put them labels on us, <laughs> and now we using them, anyway, so. It, it's kind of like, you know, because the French weren't the French. They were the Celts, exactly. the, the, the the Iberians, the Ligurians. They weren't the French until they needed a national label. Similar right. to the way that the anti-life uh, movement, anti-choice movement, uh, wasn't really thinking about anti-choice. They just needed a label that would allow their white nationalist wet dreams to be housed appropriately. So, I mean, they're very good at labeling things and renaming things, especially when they have no creative capacity. But once I get, <laughs> once I can get a child to fall in love with the idea of, of being African and to fall in love with the idea of Africa. And, and I know a lot of people are like, why y'all always talk about kings and queens? We wasn't all kings and queens. I'm like, yes, I may have been a royal goat herder. Like it is true. I may have been a oh, farmer no or, or you know, a tomato grower. But guess what? If my kids know that there have been societies where the goat herder and the tomato farmer and the okra grower have equality and equity at the table and can all have communication with the chiefs and we we can talk about what an equitable society looks like. And so, but if I start with the goat herding, ain't nobody want to grow up and be a goat herder, but everybody wants to grow up and be Ooh, a goat let, let's, pause on, let, let's take some time on this, on this, because this is a nettlesome one. And first, I mean, again, I'm grateful you're here because this is, and by the way, if you all, if y'all are watching this later on the YouTube side, these are the conversations we have in Nubia, and they're and they we're just getting started, because yeah. the criticisms we hear, everybody wasn't a king or queen, and I think about Aikwe Arma, who is lethal when it comes to this challenging of hierarchy, who is one of the most developed students of classical Africa. He does, you know, he reads and writes the Egyptian language. He's published books that have translated into various languages. He's consistently saying 
you know, those pyramids weren't built by the kings and queens. That labor force, and you know, has and, and we both been, you know, in that space when you stand at Set Ma'at that the, the, the Arabs call Dera Medina, the workers' village, and you see those little places where the people who actually built those pyramids and and mm. and wrote on the wrote in the tombs, they're very humble, simple places. Mm. Now, how do we how do we balance marking, drawing from, learning from the splendor, the monumental? scale of Africana achievement, continent-wide, Mona Matapa, Kanembornu, the note culture in what is now Nigeria, the pyramids, all over. So for people say, well, y'all talking about the pyramid? No, no, no. Go anywhere on the continent. The reason you don't see big buildings in some of those other places is they built in materials that rotted or burned them. And if you go to uh, to Janae or Timbuktu, you will see the mosque. You'll see it. But anyway, how do we balance that monumental achievement with the culture and the kind of ways that we govern each other that resulted in it? So instead of just looking at the Asantahini and saying the king, you understand the queen mothers regulate which man they put out. And at, at any moment, this person begins to move against the wills of the collective. You can switch them out. I mean, how, how do we balance those things? Because most of us are not going to be sitting in a palace. And our mom would say we shouldn't even be dreaming of palaces in the first place because that's what makes you put all your faith in a politician. Or makes you put all your faith in a justice of the Supreme Court. And God bless Kataji on Nika Brown Jackson. But I would much rather listen to your grandmother than her on the question of wisdom. So why do we value that? It's that hierarchical, how do we balance those things? Because we want all we've done, but I am i don't have a good answer to that, Prof. And dealing with children, how do y'all balance that? So we employ, uh, one of the ways that we address this is to employ a both and approach. So it's not either or, it's both and. You, have, you can only have great pyramids when you have a people who are being sustained in their housing needs on a day-to-day -day basis. You can have great structures, or unless you, you have a slaveocracy or, you know, or you're an oppressive regime. But if you're trying to create a society that values the people who are in it, you can only do the great things when you do the small things well. So we don't just glorify the big buildings. We also glorify the science of irrigation. Come we on also now. glorify the Teach. science of creating entire cities out of deserts. Teach. We glorify the, we, we have, you know, black scientists, shout out to, to brother Kwani Andrews, who come, who talk about the beauty of hydroponic systems. And we glorify the genius that went into creating math. And we have uh, black math genius folks like Dr. Rasada Moore on it. And, yeah. and so we, we glorify the intricate community building parts, the, the building blocks. When we glorify the building blocks and not just the building. So, I so think you can't build a pyramid with slave labor? Well, I, the record doesn't show that that is. Exactly. You can't build on that monumental scale without a system that incorporates people. You know what? That, that is crit. What did you say? Oh, my God. Both and structural. How do we? Okay. Okay. All right. Help, continue, please. I didn't mean to interrupt. So so as, as young people in particular get a grasp of that, what begins to happen? Well, I think when you look at, so we, one of the things that, that Brian does is he has this collage, Dr. Carr, and he puts mm. it up on the screen and he's got, and it's the collage that starts in 1619 till now. And I want to be clear, you know, I appreciate what the 1619 project did, but in some ways, in some ways, I think we should just be open to the idea that it is also uh, a frame that is sort of based on rooting our memory in theirs. Of course it is, because yeah, so. even, even the children's book, Born on the Water, the last page, the black girl got an American flag in her lap. And the Kohanna Jones is my friend. And this is, I'm saying, we should have that conversation. You, you said it perfectly. Why would you substitute our memories for their memories? That's a dead end. Yeah. Yeah. Get up. Stop being a pat meal. But anyway, you say, so he's got this chart. Brian's got this chart. Yeah, so, and then Karen just noted, who is Brian Favors? So Brian Favors is my beloved. 
with whom I am well pleased. Uh, he is my oh, husband, yeah. uh, my co-conspirator, and he's an educator. And he is the person who's created our, our African-centered Saturday school. He and the educators that we work with, uh, we used to have a summer program where we would come together and bring kids from all over the community. We partnered with Wayne Harris uh, from the, the uh, Students in Temporary Housing. We really started as a program to focus on the needs of Black homeless students, students who were in temporary housing and shelters, at least the iteration in New York did it. And shout out to Mother Tominika Howes in Pittsburgh, uh, who first introduced me to this with Freedom School. So this is really uh, a collaboration. Yeah. So it's not just Brian, it's not yeah. just me, it is a whole team of people. Uh, but he's got these two collages that he puts up. One starts in 1619 and ends with like Colin Kaepernick or something current. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the reality, the American reality. And then, you know, people can point out different things and then he will ask, you know, a variety of questions, you know, tied to the lesson. But then he's got another collage that starts 200,000 years ago with the, the first Eve, the original Eve and, you know, the original people and then bring us through. And you see all of the different elements and phases and it's all in one picture. And, and someone had asked me for it before. It's in his lessons. But I, I can't. I don't know. <laughs> show it's on his he's got powerpoints that are like 200 slides long um but the idea is that if we can create a sense of curiosity and if we can cultivate again that that falling in love with and that and, and it's sort of when you see it happen with the kids it's almost like you know how you put on clothes and they just fit you so well for the first time and yeah. maybe you, you know, if you grew up and you didn't really have clothes that fit really well, you put on clothes that fit and you just see their backs just kind of settle a little differently. And if you can create a, a, an imaginative space in their own mind where they're not just thinking about Africa from the African booty scratcher perspective, and they're thinking from Africa from the expansive I have the ability to draw on that ancestry as well. My ancestors aren't just the ones from 400 years ago. I've got almost 200,000 years of ancestors who have done all of this to draw on. It just opens up the imagination differently. And it does, I think, for our children, what Hebrew school did for that brother I was talking to, the Jewish brother I was talking to in law school. When you grow up with your back straight, and you're not a broken child and you're, you're raised up as a child who knows who you are and who most importantly believes in your people's potential. Because a lot of uh, a lot of our issues, we don't really believe black people can win. Like, I mean, I, I believe I love black people, but I'm going to work for the man because I don't really believe that I can right. work for black people and be successful. But right. when you grow up believing knowing and having receipts that you can point to that say, oh, well, no, that's not true what they say about us. This is what's really true. And in fact, let me show you, here's how you do the research and here's what you should be thinking. Here's the scholarship. And so you will have situations like my daughter coming home and saying that the teacher didn't quite know how to respond when she was talking about Thomas Jefferson. One of her teachers said Thomas Jefferson was a hero and Nia says, but he was a slave owner. How about how really that? Good could he, and he had children who were slaves, Mrs. So-and-so. So she's in the third grade. He had children. How much of a hero could he possibly be? So and, she's and, not coming home confused. She's like, mommy, my team, they just didn't know. They, they just didn't did, know. How did they react? Well, often they cut off the conversation. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. My, 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 my fantasy is, one of my fantasies in, in a situation like that is that not only did they, because the slave owner stuff, they don't know to deal with. Also, to say, and Thomas Jefferson was brilliant. Have you ever read his correspondence with Benjamin Banneker? Mm. What? Oh, yeah, no, he didn't write Banneker back because Thomas Jefferson was brilliant and Benjamin Banneker was smarter than him. In other words, even the slave stuff, they start saying, okay, he had a flaw. Okay, let's deal with his mind because that's the thing you worship him on, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, a lot of his ideas, his inventions at Monticello, those were black people. 
yeah, like the buildings he built. Did he build any of those buildings? The plans he drew? Who did he talk with? with them? In other words, what really shakes him when you come out of their mind? I mean, when I think about you and I sitting in law school, and I suspect, in fact, I know you went to law school, same reason I did. Is this the place we go get the brick? In other words, is this where I get the gun that's going to help free our people, right? And then you get in there and realize it's a house of cards. You know what I'm but but what, 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 at least what to this day has never been displaced, I think, for either of us, I think, just listening to you and observing you and seeing how you move through the world, is the question of intellectual work. Hmm. Our people are, and by our people, I mean people of African descent anywhere, of course, have have a demonstrated record of excellence requiring the mind. And so how do we reinflate that area of possibility so that it isn't just the things to which our intellectual work has been applied, but it's a reconnection to the things that we have done, including the things we never stopped doing. Let me give you a very concrete example. You know, God bless these young people who are getting millions of dollars to go throw a ball in a hoop. But when I watch this kid drafted number five in the NBA draft a couple of days ago, go to the Detroit Pistons, embrace his mother, who played in the WNBA, which, of course, is a criminal enterprise that they use to put the uh, the other league, the, the player owned league out of business. Some of us remember David Stern when they put they were losing money in the WNBA, but they had to stop this American basketball league because those women were going to have a player owned league. Some of y'all may go back. But anyway. His mom played ball in the WNBA. She's the coach at Notre Dame. He's embracing her. Everybody's clapping and saying, this is wonderful. And I'm sitting there looking like, yeah, this is great. But do you realize that that athletic prowess is an application of your mind and your body in concert? And it is a pinprick to what you could apply your mind to. Because in this society, they look at us and say, look at your excellence in running and jumping and it don't require no thinking, which of course it does. But you went to school, you went to college for one year. And I'm not saying you had to go to college. LeBron James is evidence of that. But I am saying you need to do structured, ordered intellectual work. Why? LeBron James is an example of that. In other words, you could you, our intelligence is never questioned, but you're gonna need some spaces that develop that intelligence, and you don't have to go back to Africa, you don't have to go back to Kemet, you don't have to go back to West Africa or Central Africa. You can go back to the segregated schools of the South. Mm. You can go back to the communities there in New York during the African Senate movement. You can go and look at these programs, homeschooling. People are asking now in the in the chat about homeschooling and how you linked and how you connected. We never stopped having these spaces, but how do we reinflate our sense of the possible in a society where we are taught to apply our standard of excellence to the things that this society wants to see from us? Running, okay. jumping, dancing. And then people say, well, you shouldn't discourage them because that, no, I'm like, I'm almost at the point where we should discourage them because Oscar Robinson played basketball. Paul Robeson was an All-American football player, but you've forgotten that that same standard of intelligence he used on the football field, he used in the law, at law school at Columbia, at Rutgers to be at the top of his class. And that's not to say that should be the standard, but it is to say ball playing is a point of entry, but at some point that ball playing and singing got to be displaced in my mind, because I don't see how we break the cycle until we walk away from allowing that to not only be a point of entry, but to remain at the center of our sense of the possible, because that's what these people want from us. And then they'll turn around and let you run, as in Herschel Walker, for Senate. 
In other words, <laughs> we don't want y'all to. When Nia walked in there and challenged her on Thomas Jefferson, I know your child could have very easily continued that into the intellectual work. And if that teacher thought she was shook about Thomas Jefferson's slave owner, let's talk about Thomas Jefferson, architect and astronomer. Mm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, no, we coming for your mind. And by the way, Badaker said he got it from his granddaddy who got it in Africa. Oh, no. Mm. <laughs> Jefferson disappears. And I'm sorry, Lin-Manuel. You had to rap about somebody else, bro. Yeah, I'm coming at your neck forever because that's the kind of slave shit that just destroys us. But worshiping your master, brother. I'm sorry. No matter how much hip hop you put in their mouth. Anyway. But that, that so we, we started to watch Hamilton at the beginning of the pandemic. I wasn't paying for them tickets. Um, no my, my whole family was frustrated from the oldest to the young. We was like, my son was like, this don't make no sense. I don't understand why they were bad people. Why do we want us playing? I mean, these were not good people. But again, that is an example of what happens when you see yourself through the eyes of the oppressor, when you root yes. your memory in theirs. Yes. And, and as an extension of the Pan-African diaspora, Lin-Manuel, uh, is also infected with this white supremacist view of the world that says our history only matters when we inject ourselves into the stories, not even the actual history, into the stories that they tell. That's One right. thing about ball players, and my husband always says this, um, and the reason that is such an attractive lane is because that's also, in addition to the monetary reality, it's one of the few places where Black men can be as free as they want, can wear what they want, can oh, say what they want, talk how they want, bringing the culture that they want. Wouldn't it be great if you could also do that in architecture? This is what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, Larry. I'm right? with you 100%. No question. <laughs> no, if you want to see the most intellect and care, you go, the most, the most debate, I remind me of Richard Pryor. Richard, the barbershop, the beauty parlor. Richard Pryor said, my daddy would sit in the barbershop and wait for a Negro to make a mistake. He's like, 19 what? No, I'm not gonna 19 what? It was, come, get in your car. You got your car? Follow me to my house. I got the book at the house. In other words, that's the art. How do we get that into those other places? It's not the standard. We, oh, I'm sorry, I can't go around. No, no, no. Uh, and how much grace do we give? Because what happens is, you know, there's a tune out. You know, we, we see it here. You, we, we've talked about this off mic a little bit. I don't know this, so I'm going to reject it because I feel like I, I'm, I feel like I can't catch up. I feel like, you know, so it's easier to be in these spaces of mindlessness because I don't feel inadequate. We're dealing with a whole society built and rooted on mediocrity and inadequacy. And, and the reaction to, I know I'm not good enough and I know I can't compete. So instead of competing, I'm going to depress and destroy anybody that I have to compete with. This is the system of whiteness that we're in. In the black community, we're also dealing with people not wanting to, you know, I can't sit all the man with all of the books, too many books. I can't, I can't keep up. We got to read 12, you know, and then it becomes a rejection of it because if I can't compete, then I don't even want to play with you. I'd rather destroy you. I'd rather ridicule you. I'd rather, because I need to feel good about myself. How much grace do we give and how do we do it? For me, it's always been mama bird. I'm gonna chew it up, I'm gonna spit it in your mouth. I'm gonna get your mouth working. Hopefully it'll get to your, your stomach and your brain and nourish you. And I think everybody in this room is kind of excellent at that. Cause Dr. Carr gonna sing, he gonna cuss a little bit. He gonna throw some bars out there. He's gonna, you know, so that you don't feel, but at what point do we say that's not good enough for you to feel inadequate and then and not even try? Let's, let's tie it to uh, Karen and Marie. Let's tie it to Clarence Thomas. Hmm. 
seriously, uh, Corey Robin wrote a book called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. I think that you and I immediately get it. I'm sure you were saying in law school what I was saying. You know, Thomas, we get Thomas because we know black people, that deeply conservative black, like his grandfather, like them people in Pinpoint, Savannah, Georgia. There's a certain mentality that says, don't ask anybody for anything. Why do you support the Second Amendment? Because you can get a gun too. So when the Holy Cross, he says, one of the things that I, I he says, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, it made sense to me. You are, there's a lot of deep conservatism. The nation is not, get the gun. The other thing is prisons. He We know he is hell on prisoners. They just got rid they just demolished another avenue for folk to exonerate themselves. People say, well, how do you explain that with Clarence Thomas? He's a sellout. No. Go ask people in your community. One thing Sonia Sotomayor used to say when she was a prosecutor there in New York, she would like to get black immigrants in the box, black and brown immigrants. Why? Because they looking at other black people like, you messing up. You have to, you know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm just saying as a point of entry, but here's the thing, the, the grace. We have all the grace in the world. At the same time, we balance that with something I've heard people say many times. And Karen, you know, you know this because obviously in your work as a journalist, one of the areas that you cover with sports, people say, you don't ask for affirmative action on the basketball court. Mm. Either you, you run and you hold the court till you lose. Now, somebody come out there and say, I can't play. You're not saying, okay, if you miss, we're just going to, no, ball, D up. In other words, Clarence Thomas has a mentality that this is a very austere country. If black people want to make it, take away all of the uh, the ways that enfeeble black people. I'm not saying I agree with him, but I do say that within these Africana structures, Dr. Obinga used to say this all the time when we were in grad school. He said, you don't build a pyramid by dreaming. You don't let somebody come in and, and chop the chip, the, the granite with a chip on it and let them put that brick in there, put that block. No, that does not meet the standard. So how do you all, how do you and Brian, you know, as you're bringing young people in, and this goes for everybody, all of us, because you're right, we got all the grace in the world. How we have that grace, that accommodation at the same time that we not only maintain, but we elevate a standard. Because in this society, we seem to elevate Black people who have a certain standard of excellence, even as we begin to, as we continue to kind of reinforce what you just said, Karen, decide that we can't achieve it. But absent that, we'll just continue to. I, I'm not oh, anyway. Let me let me pause here because there's some, uh, some other stuff I want to say. I don't really want to say that because because as long when we accommodate that kind of lessening, and that's not what we're talking about in terms of grace, obviously, but the accommodation of lessening, it seems to me that it ultimately creates a, a diminished standard. Mm -hmm. 100 years from now, I'm not sure that any of our descendants will be listening to Beyonce, but I'm absolutely sure they'll be listening to Nina Simone. So I, I'm just trying to think, I mean, you know, at what point do we step back and say, you see, this is what happens when you just say everybody... I don't know. Let me pause. <laughs> that question of grace is important because, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. <laughs> right? so All we, of us. So no, we, question. no question. But then, Dr. Carr, I'm also reminded, just going back to the Black church and the, yeah. and the Bible, um, there were 40 years of desert walking that people had to engage in where they just had to die in the desert. 
Like everybody couldn't go to the promised land because they were not in the space of being open enough to doing the work of changing their own minds to believe that they could. Now, leaving aside the politics of a deity telling you to go into somebody else's land and claim it. I think this came up the last time we were talking about that. So we're going to put that to the side for now. But remember, the Bible is a, a, a particular people's cultural history book and that has been used and, and sort of embraced in other spaces. But it is a cultural book, a history book a mythological book, if you will, for, for other groups of people. But they, people had to die in the desert. And the promised land was like right freaking there. Like, it's like, it's like right there. Joshua and Caleb, all they're like, hey, we in the promised land, we made it. And the other 10 children of Israel representatives, the 10 child Israel representatives said something so important. They said, we went into the land because they were spying it out. And we saw the people of the land, yeah, there's milk and honey. Yes, it's flowing. But we were like grasshoppers as compared to giants. So in their own mind, following the myth of coming out of enslavement, whatever was happening there, in their own mind, they did not believe they were worthy enough of this thing that their God had promised them they could have. So they could not, uh, they could not get in the space. So long as you can't believe it and you're not willing to do the work, they could not enter the space. Wakanda, you want to keep the fictional stories going? Come you might walk past Wakanda every day, but if you didn't know it was there and your mind hadn't been open so that you could see that there was a portal, you were just going to keep walking past freedom and honey on the other side. But you, if you don't know, if you haven't done the work, you don't get to access. And I think that it's it, the Matrix, the, the, the film, The Matrix, again, leaving aside the issues with The Matrix, there was an understanding that if you were in the matrix for too long, we could not unhook you because the trauma of, of being awakened to the reality was so dramatic, it would cause you to destroy everything we were trying to build. So I, I do believe in reincarnation. Uh, so just that's, a, you know, that may be where I get some comfort from that. I don't think everybody gonna make it this first time around. You might have to come back. Might be some lessons you have to learn. And I'm okay with that. I may not be able, but I do know to Karen's question, and to that concept of dirty water next to clean water for people who are like, oh, I can't do it. I'm checking out. I just need this dirty water because it's easier to get to and I'm thirsty. Once they see enough people drinking the clean water and they've seen enough people successfully get access to clean water over a period of time, because at first they're going to be like, you and words going over there trying to drink that clean water. You know, they ain't going to have no clean right. water for right. everybody. That's right. Then you realize, oh, wait, all y'all who went got clean water. That, that could happen. Well, you know, I'll, I'll take a little sip. I'll, I ain't coming. I ain't moving because I know y'all got to dig too many daggone wells. I ain't doing all that. But, I, you know, I didn't know you you could actually find clean water. Uh, what what y'all do? How, come on. Come on. Come on. Tell me how you did that. And you sparked the curiosity, not with the books, not with the intellectual points of entry, but with the demonstration that Black success is a possibility and that Black people can actually be in a room and not argue and not fight. We've had kids come into spaces in our Sankofa circles. So we've got Sankofa Saturday School for the kids, but then for the adults, we have Sankofa Circles. Shout out to all of you who may have participated in some of those over the past couple of decades. But in Sankofa Circles, that's that uh, White Supremacy Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. We, we used to do it when I was younger, Dr. Kyle, we did it every week. Every week we was having a Sankofa Heal for White Supremacy Circle in come Philly, on. in Penn State, in Texas, in New York. Oh, now we got mortgages and kids, so we don't do it every week. <laughs> but <laughs> In those spaces where there is consistency, and, and consistency is important because a lot of times we start something and we don't stick with it. Exactly. Where people see consistent, integrity-driven, 
principle-based and rooted approaches to something, to solving an issue that's successful. And they were like, well, wait a minute, I didn't even think we could win, but you just showed me not only are you winning, but you're teaching other people how to win. And, I, and all we do is win, 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 no matter all what. We do is win, and we love each other. And we've had people come into spaces that were created with that energy. It was like, I've never felt this safe around this many black people before. Like we have, we have a no nigga, no bitch rule in all of our stuff. Like we ain't no niggas, we ain't no bitches. Like that's in our classrooms, and we we just don't do that. And we create, and you know, we got kids from you know from Brooklyn, from the Bronx, and by the end of the session. If you say nigga or you say bitch, they will correct you in the class. No niggas, no bitch. And it's a whole chant changing the culture. Now, when you first tell them we have a no nigga rule in here, they're like, nigga, what? Right, <laughs> right, right. Five push-ups, please. Um, we'll wait. Discipline. We'll wait. You got a standard. And the room begins to police to monitor oh, no question. itself. And you know what? That is such a lesson. We never stop doing that. There are certain places that are inviolate. Well, at one point it was the record, the basketball cup. This is sacred. At one point it's the barbershop, the beauty. This is sacred. You just these are principles our people know. That's we right. just haven't applied them. I love that integrity, principles-based, proven, consistent. And we, it, we should yeah. also, we should be okay with black people doubting. It's oh, natural. of course. And in fact. We should be so okay with it that all of our solutions are structured so that we account for it and absorb the doubt. Absolutely. We should be able to factor the doubt. We should be able to factor our anti-blackness, that probe in all of our heads, factor it into our freedom plan. So then we don't get frustrated with black people. I love when people are like, oh, I tried to do this and the black people didn't want to support me. But you should have known that was going to happen if you knew black people. Your That's plan right. should have accounted for that and created a way to address the doubt that you knew was baked into the issue in the first place. Uh, consistency. We are 120 consistent Saturdays in a row. That's right. 120 That's right. Saturdays in a row through death, through pandemic, through Don't everything. 120 consistent Saturdays in class with car, yeah. including Saturday. one in person. Okay. <laughs> we don't miss. We don't miss. <laughs> no, and, and we've added, we've added to narrative. And then out of that Nubia, which is now 10 months old and Eljoy Williams just texted me. She said, Lurie and I met in one of those Sankofa places because that's where the building happens in spaces that were created to build. And so, let me just mention that Penn State, when you mentioned Penn State, Lurie, and I think we talked, I don't know if we talked since, yeah, we talked about Lawrence Young, right? Make yeah. transition, right? We talked about that. Yeah. I mean, you all entered a space where black people had held space yes. for that long. And, and I don't care because, you know, I went to Ohio State, the Big Ten, each one of those schools has some black people fighting in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It's like a relay race. Then when we get yeah. there, we in here, and then coming into Brooklyn, with you and Brian in Brooklyn, again, I just think about the East. I think about the African Street Festival. I think about the fact, in other words, this Africa we're talking about isn't just a continent, isn't just an idea, it's a practice, and it's an unbroken practice. So now y'all got the, the relay, and now we're here, and everybody in here right now to what you're raising, everybody when Karen, you say bring our brick, everybody's bringing who we are, and who we are is coming, somebody said in the chat a minute ago, Cindy said, they teach the same kind of miseducation in the Caribbean. Yes, but they're also there. And, and people, you know, and this is the thing I'll say about it, we all have different roles and we talk about, you know, I know we grapple with this. 
there is this sense that, you know, there are, um, there are triggers. You know, you see all this stuff around me because this is, you know, this is the life I chose. But at the same time, everybody not don't not supposed to do that. Everybody's not supposed to do that. At the same time, those of us, if that's the path that we chose, we have to devote that to the collective. What you said is so important. Collective. I mean, you said success. Success is a destiny. Collective success. Because we all know individuals who are very successful. I know individual. We know individual academics who write about black liberation and don't see many black people. Well, to me, that's you. That's almost useless unless it's connected to the collective. And if they can't collect it, connected to the finally, if they can't connect it to the collective individually, then those of us for whom the path is to sit quietly, read, think, discuss, and then share with people who are reading or thinking or discussing and building their lives, then it's our job to absorb some of that stuff. We have to build those spaces. The university is not going to free us. The schools are not going to free us. You know, there's a reason why universities charge tuition. There's a reason why they uh, are exclusive. There's a reason why there's a hierarchy because they're trying to replicate the existing world. We have no interest in that. We have no interest in that. So yeah, I love this. Consistency, integrity, principles-based and proven. Shit. I mean, I'm sorry. I just, these are the ones I wrote down. I know. Listen, bring us home. You know, we start off, you know, not really talking about Roe v. Wade because Roe v. Wade is not really the center of what comes next. The center of what comes next is what we determine. And I want to use this time and space to remind everybody that we're not powerless, that nothing is happening to us, that we have the ability to absolutely live the kind of world, live the kind of lives and create the kind of world we want to live in because we epigenetically have the power to do that. We've done it before. We will do it again. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And so in this space, I just want to remind us of that. This, whatever they do with these courts and, you know, people who aren't going to vote in November, you didn't, a hundred million of you didn't vote in 2016 is how we got here. So keep not doing something and keep listening to people telling you uh, your vote doesn't matter. All of the tools to dismantle this thing that is keeping us from our best selves must be used. And anyone telling you opposite of that is part of the problem. And you should not be in community with people who are not about building a better world. Um, but I just want to know y'all's thoughts before we wrap up and thank all of the Nubians for being here this morning. Man, y'all really, man, this number keeps going up. I love yeah. it. I, I, I'll say a couple of words. And Larry, you, you, you wrap us up, sis, because I mean, First of all, none of you, obviously, you're not a guest. I mean, we're all in this together. Um, I hope you'll, you know, to the degree that you can, given the family and all the other things, institution building you're doing, come back in the space as many times as you, you don't want, please. I mean, in this, in this, in this public facing part. Let me say this. Uh, the part of the planning uh, is to bring Larie and Brian and others into building the yes. very thing that we saw. So everybody's like, well, where's the curriculum? Please be patient. Please, please know that that's all part that we had already last year decided we were going to do something for young people since we were talking about rites of passage and all that ways in which young people can reimagine uh, themselves through an African lens, Africana's uh, framework. So it's already in the works. And I want to thank you, Larie, uh, ahead of everything that we're building for uh, the work that you did. Cause you couldn't be in this space unless the work was already done. You don't just come with a brick that's unformed. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. I think one of the 
things we have to do. And again, this is why this space is so important and spaces like it is understand the world. We have to think about the world, but we have to understand the world as it is. You know, Karen was saying something yesterday uh, on the radio about this capacity to to study. Studying is important. I mean, everybody is a is a is a monastic lives the monastic life of a scholar, which goes all the way back to Africa. I mean, those university systems in Europe do not derive from the West. They are absolutely modeled on the study they see in, saw in Africa. And so let's not even get into that. But we do have to understand the world as it is. People do not like to suffer. We're not built to suffer. The cultures of scarcity that you talked about, Larie, and you sound so much like Octavia Butler in this moment, it seems to me, in terms of this idea of, you know, what's coming and what how we have to prepare. That's because people felt like they had no choice. And so, you know, I'm reading a book now, uh, Matt Grossman, Red State Blues, How to Conserve the Revolution Stalled in the States. And what he's saying is, it's very interesting. In fact, I think he's at, he was at Penn State for a minute. No, Michigan State. He's saying that these red state revolutions in the United States, for those people who are outside the country, where it looks like they've taken over the states and in Texas and Louisiana, what he says is the most striking thing Republicans or what we call white nationalists have done in these red states, which now in the wake of Roe being overturned, they're going to now ban abortion and trigger the real fight, which the suffering is not going to go away. But in the long term, I think will be better. And what he's saying is the most striking things they've achieved is they've been effective at staying in power. But this is just a line of what he says. He says, sustained conservative policymaking is difficult. The scope of government tends to expand over time and programs are rarely dislodged with social changes more often codified than reversed. Of the policies that do come into being, the effects on real world outcomes such as economic growth and societal well-being tend to be small. Conservative policies are limited by design and then tend to be diluted or counteracted by bureaucracies that implement them. He goes on to say, when you think that people oppress other people with their laws and policies, people don't like to suffer. So they're going to be workarounds. Texas has banned abortion. Do you really think that's going to be the last time somebody terminates a pregnancy? When you heard Joe Biden come on television, and this is not caping for Joe Biden at all. We need Eljo in here at some point. We need you all coming here because we want. I want to hear two of y'all talk about this as well. He said, you know, we're going to use the full power of the federal government. Now, that could mean any number of things. But if you're sending off for the pill, what do they call it? Is it C? Plan C? Is that it? I'm... Plan B. What's plan B? What's that pill? It's a, it's a pill that will allow you to have a self-medicated abortion. How far out from in terms of the price is it a month two i don't know no it, it doesn't have the same limitations as the uh the six month or the six week ban or the 15 week ban. i'm not sure how long into the pregnancy you can take it i'll look that up right okay. now let me let me let me ask you this counselor now let me just let you let me, as, a, as a legal scholar and as a lawyer if you sit in austin texas and send off for that pill and they mail it from new york city can the state of texas stop you from taking it can they arrest you for sending out for it they're trying yes they are it's going to end up in the courts now we're going all the way back to where we started this is the question of federalism that's right this is the question see when you think these white boys won what grossman is saying he did a quantitative study of all these states their policies their lawmakers and what he said is it looks in the press one way but when you look at the impact bureaucracies are very difficult to shrink 
What does it say? The reason to get Oh, I, let me make a correction. Karen, thank you for this. Plan B actually doesn't cause a, an abortion. It prevents the abortion. There is also an additional medical, uh, there is a, a medical pill that you can also use to, to trigger that. But hey, this look. can be, and this is why I'm, this is so important to have fact checking. We got a fact check in real time. I'm gonna read y'all what she said. Aaron, thank you for this. Plan B points that works like other birth control to prevent pregnancy. So I misspoke. Let's let's be clear. I'm correcting the record. Uh, the or Karen has helped me correct the record. The drug acts primarily by stopping the release of the egg. It may prevent a sperm uh, from fertilizing the egg. Uh, if fertilization does occur, it may prevent the egg from attaching to the womb. So I, I said that yeah, to and, you. And, and, and in the chat, they're it. saying it as well. And I'm seeing that uh, in the chat, and I'm also getting a text from uh, Dr. Reba Kelsey, who is saying within 72 hours of unprotected sex, she's a newbie and she's in the chat too. So yeah, everybody's correct, right? But the, but the, but the point is, well, actually, now having having had that clarified, and thank you all the nation, because again, this is the bricks. We we already built our structure. Now we just add no rooms. We really right. But uh, the point is that if you send for it from a state where they've outlawed it, they're gonna try to criminalize you sending for it. But here's the thing: the federal government will is going to challenge that. And so what we're now going to see is a return to the courts. And this is where I'll end in terms of just today's summit. The unintended consequences of these rulings. Joe Biden is an uninspiring candidate. We know I doubt he's even going to run in twenty four. We'll talk about that. With we, are they going to get take a bloodbath in the midterms? Guess what? This might we'll we'll look back. And I'm not caping for the Democrats. This might have saved some seats. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Might this, even expand some possibilities for some. Take us home. Take, take us home. Take us home, Dorit. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm stop right there and get let you please go right. Ahead. No, it's, 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 it may because this is going to have a galvanizing effect, and one of the reasons that we will often see Republicans make a big deal about things like critical race theory or culture war issues is because it drives out turnout. It'll drive turnout. Their base will turn out. They'll get very upset about what you are doing in your bedroom, which has no impact on their ability to keep their teeth in their mouth because they still don't have dental care. <laughs> has no ability on the ability on, on their has no impact on their ability to not have a stroke because they don't have no health care. But they will make sure you're not inserting your penis into another. I mean, that's Come that's on. really going to matter. Come on. But so they're tr <laughs> but this, <laughs> this thing about. Um, uh, I just wanted to pick up on, on something you and Karen had said earlier, the, the individual success, and, and we, we focus a lot on individuals. I think we, if we begin employing just some small little tweaks in our language, it can help to reframe or at least broaden out the way that we think about these things. So like when we work with teachers, as Brian also does a lot of professional development for educators, how to use the research on race and identity in academics uh, in academia in the classroom to, to the benefit of the children. And some teachers who just don't care, they're just like, oh, this is too much, all this, so, you know, uh, socially emotional is too much. And so we, we created, he, he created um, when they were, when he was in an actual, in the actual classroom, a, a box on the lesson plan, a question on the lesson, because you got to teach, have your lesson plans. And at the end of every lesson plan, whether you cared about your children or not, you had to be able to answer, why should they care? Like, what does this have to do with their real life? Why should they care? And that was the design to get teachers who did not want to think about the needs of the kids to force them to think about the needs of the kids. When we talk about the individual successes of our individual stars. I think if we were to ask a question, you know, and then what did they do for the people? And wait for the answer. So so-and-so just got signed. They were the number one draft pick. Da, da, da. Oh, that's good. Where are their investments for the community targeted? Mm. What, what, what youth plans do they have? Well, they come from such and such, such community. Do they do anything for the seniors there? They just got this million dollars. Of, you know, 
the expectation is that their individual success is enough. And if we were to flip that to add, oh, I'm so proud of little Junior. Look, he used to run that ball up and down. What's yeah. he doing for the people? And I asked this because our, my mom was reminding me now that our son has his first summer job. She was like, and remember, he has to contribute something to the household. Don't forget when you got your first job, part of it, you had to put, we, we was in the church. So 10% had to go to the Lord. Come but on part now. of it had to go to the Ooh. household because my parents wanted me to understand you are a part of a unit. What you get ain't just for you. Like you only reason you got this job is because we drove you there. You only got this paper route because we driving you around. So you're going to have to take a portion of your, your pay and contribute to the household. Here's the family budget. Here's what our needs are. Here's how your contribution will help. That changed my orientation around what my success as an individual was. And when we celebrate these individuals, oh, so-and-so got a Grammy. Oh, I love her music. What's she do for the people? Come on now. Where, where's her youth program? Teach. What, 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 what branch of Nubia is she investing in and sustaining? Teach. Teach. You bringing back memory, sis. We kept <laughs> that grass. My mom like, okay, you giving a dime and every dollar to the Lord. That's right. And then... What you bringing in the house? You brought all that back in a split set. That's right. That's the question. So I think that hmm. if we can convince ourselves that there is a, that, that was one of my moments of gratitude. Um, Kalma Chalpa, I, mean, I just messed up the name, but somebody basically put out a quote that I used for a moment of gratitude. And the quote was, you have to believe that the path from dreams to success exists. And for so many of us as black people, the pathway from dreaming about black freedom and actually manifesting it we don't see that it exists. And I think what this space makes so important, um, and I don't even know if I'm answering Karen's final question. I don't forgot what the question was, but what, what makes this- Take us home, sum it up. Come okay, well, here we go. Here. What makes this place, place so important is that it is a consistent, integrity, principle-driven example of what that success looks like. And it embodies, because I, I was telling, Karen had asked me some questions to think about, you know, some metaphysical questions, you know, the goals and the things that you want to do. And, do. and while I'm contemplating this, then she just casually, a couple of days later, just drops a link into the text. Oh, and by the way, this is happening. And it's the manifestation of something she was talking about, like, just two months ago. Yes. And I'm like, you got me contemplating my life and then you just slipping all these manifested dreams in my text, like just all willy-nilly manifested. And, and having an example of that is so important, but it reminds us that when we change the expectation from celebrating the individual success to yes and, oh, so we're going to celebrate you and there is a demand to see how that individual success is tied to the needs of our people. Otherwise, we can't celebrate you no more. Like you don't got that first applause. You didn't, but we, we can't celebrate you no more because you getting a job wasn't the point, black elected officials. How you about getting, that? You, you getting a job wasn't the point, uh, a valedictorian. That's right. You having personal success and being able to Cosby family your way on out the hood. I was talking about the show, not the man. Yeah. <laughs> like the Cosby show, <laughs> on out the, out the hood and be completely divorced from the needs of your community while you enjoy your individual success. That is no longer the definition mm -hmm. of how we mm -hmm. see a successful black mm -mm. person. Or, or reach back and bring two of us. That's right. not... We don't have time for each one, teach one. The math don't math no more. The math. Come on now. The Come on now. Hey, Karen, that's another one of them things young people say. The math don't math. <laughs> if you do not have a freedom plan for you and your family and 10 other people, query whether you're doing what you can. And maybe you are, but just know that our expectation is that you do more. We right. got to raise the bar and raise the standard for what, not just what excellence looks like, you know, but what success looks like, what freedom looks like, we got to raise the bar. We have allowed them to devolve everything to the level that they are comfortable with.
I'm not comfortable with this level of mediocrity. No one in here should be comfortable with where we well, are. Well, I think that's the point that Grossman is making. It appears that they're comfortable with it. But in fact, to the point you raised, Larry, they are not comfortable with it. The evidence of state legislatures is, yeah, they pass they passing all these laws, but the people who live under them create workarounds. And once you've expanded, that's why they didn't want to do Medicare expansion, because they knew if you expanded that, you could never take it back. This is Grossman's point. They think you tell me we're going to change these laws. No, the reason you don't let it happen. In fact, you know, he opens the book. Remember that teacher strike just before COVID? Red in Nebraska and the these people are not allowed to have unions yet somehow they want concessions. Why? They, they don't want it either. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And when and what they've done with this one, hold up all these people. It may be a pushback. Oh, go ahead. Hold up the book again. Oh, it's called Red State Blues: How the Conservative Revolution. Now, I'm not saying obviously what have we been saying? It's all a puzzle. So ain't none of these Bibles. Well, actually, technically, they are all Bibles because it comes, Biblos comes from the Greek, right? It just mean book. <laughs> so, I mean, they're all books, but Bible, of course, just like diaspora comes from the Greek, the diaspora means literally dia is the same thing you get from twinning or two, right? You come, the, the, the smoke almost that comes from being consumed by fire. So, in other words, we went through a trauma mm. as a result we are the dispersion of that which was assaulted in the case of diaspora literally like you burn a piece of wood what remains from that is the smoke we are the smoke but we still exist we've been dispersed but anyway back 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 to back back to the point none of these books are going to free us none of this is going to free us but what will free us is what you said this consistency this study this application this collective work and when Two years ago, when Karen was like, oh, in, in press record, we're going to record our conversation. And here we are a couple of years later, just before that, when they, when the world shut down, you know, standing there at Howard in the parking lot, get ready to get in my car for the last time before the COVID. And I said to myself, you know, we got to jailbreak this. God knows I love, we love our black institutions and I don't make a distinction. In other words, Mega Evers and Howard are in the same, and anybody who thinks it isn't, you know, we can have that conversation maybe one Monday night in Newby. We, uh, we just have a whole conversation because this whole idea of ranking Negro colleges. But guess what? As much as we love our beloved institutions, they are not the answer because most of our people ain't never going to see the inside of those doors. So what we're doing, you know, and that goes for that working class school you work at too, Karen Hunter College. None of those aren't those are tools. We use them. Of course, we recruit. But let's be clear what we're doing right here. This is the new normal. This is the new, it, no, I'm sorry. In many ways, it's the new normal in this society. It's the renewed normal in terms of return to the standard we, as the first humans on the planet, have never abandoned. We just got to remember, in your words, uh, Larry. Oh, your race got to fix that shirt that you have. The renewed what? normal. But well, we got to change that. No, I, no, 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 no. But 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 to, to your point of grace. No, in other grace. words, renewed may be too better. Again, this is how that happens. This is how we evolve. Now that we know better, we're going to evolve. Uh, into the renewed normal. I like that. Hmm. I like it. You said it out your mouth and it resonates with my soul. You know what? Now, see, I know we getting ready to go. I just think about in terms of these Supreme Court cases, the even the liberals, even Sotomayor, even Breyer, right? And Kagan, not so much. Because remember, they had that 8-1 decision in the North Carolina voting case and Sotomayor was the only one who said, you, you know, and Larry, you know, you know, this whole notion of the the independent legislature 
so that these two Republicans in North Carolina say, I know the governor is not going to defend this ass backward voting rights law. I know the attorney general in the state is not going to do it. So us two members of the white nationalist party going to intervene in this case. And eight to one, the Supreme Court said it's okay. Sonia Sotomayor is like, uh, don't their elected representatives, hey, hey, Sam, Sam, you're racist. I know we both Catholics, but let's set that aside for a second. You're racist. You said return it to the people, right? The people voted for a governor and an attorney general. And you're going to let these two rogue members of the white national legislature in, in North Carolina insert themselves in, in, in a battle because they want to keep voter restriction. And y'all said it's okay. So anyway, the three liberals on the court right now still have a concept of the United States that has never existed. So in the context of a settler state that is anti-human, anti-indigenous, anti-black, anti-brown, and anti-poor, anti-women, and everybody says it didn't, you should read this last week of uh, Supreme Court decisions, and the 50 years that led up to it, as you said, we have to understand that even when you stand against it, you are standing against the whole thing, not just the last 50 years, not just the last 100 years, not just everything that happened before the civil after the Civil War, but everything that happened before it. It is the structure you are standing against. So in that context, in that limited context, what we are doing is building a new normal in terms of a social structure. This will be a new normal for the social structure. But within our forms of governance, who we are to each other, it is as Larie, as you say, a remembering. So in that way, it is a uh, a renewed normal because the normal we had before was not, again, borrowing from you, sis, borrowing from you, uh, Larie, it was not to scale. This is Howard French's point. It We never, we, we were interrupted before we could have conversations with each other on that huge landmass to create. But that interruption just created the diaspora. I was gonna, I don't think, you know and now we will renew the normal on scale. That's all. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was gonna say, I don't think we would have ever come together had they not come in and done what they did. So everything yeah. is in the fullness of time. Everything happens for a reason. Everything. I want to thank the colonizers and the destroyers and the How about that? maniacs, but I will say, y'all, the thing that you were afraid of, you created. You created. You created the manifestation of the very thing you feared, which is a black planet. Hello. Hi. And it, but it, but underneath that fear is desire. You know we you know you want your parents to correct you. Anyway, <laughs> and even if you don't, we gonna we gonna discipline. It's got to be some discipline. Say, I'm very good at ass whooping myself. Personally. Uh, we, we will deliver that uh, proverbially, of course, not physically. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> just say thank you uh, both, uh, Laurie. I know it's very early. You got this Saturday. And uh, yes, and you gotta. What what is that? What what uh -oh, is that? Uh oh, what's that cat name? That cat is Mrs. Potato. She is my co-host on all things that I do in front of this computer. So if you ever hear a loud purring while I'm on air or here, it's because Mrs. Potato is in my lap. Mrs. Potato yeah, is co-signing. Yes. yes. That's in divine order because you know cats had the complete run of the country in Kemet. <laughs> so I mean, you already know. Cats, when you go to Kemet, you go there now, you see the dogs laying in the shade, but them cats, cats are the royalty of Kemet. Sek Met. Mm -hmm. All them, we like said, said, Met got drunk and wiped out everybody. He's like, what are you doing? No, look, it's a cat. Just leave the cat be. <laughs> you know she agrees right now. So it's beautiful. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Nubians, for getting up or 
waking up and going to bed, some of you, uh, wherever you are. Uh, I want to thank you, of course, uh, Lurie, as always. Y'all can check her out, those of you who are in Sirius XM, 10 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. Uh, you're going to be seeing more of her here in Nubia in the coming months. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and Dr. Carr, on Monday, uh, office hours, we're going to be continuing. Uh, I got my re -up. Oh, oh, Octavia. Octavia. Yesterday, yes. Yes, parable of the talent. First half, we're going up through chapter 12 on Monday night. But anyway, Maroon's Medicine Chest tomorrow. Tomorrow, that's right. Dr. Senyata is going to be in community with y'all. Uh, so, yes, get uh, hold, hold that up again for those who have not. Um, the Octavia. Solo layout for you. And make sure you get you some nice lemon so that when you brew your Octavia Butler here and put it in your cup. See, I got mine in the big joint in my Decolonize Your Tongue Calabash tea joint. And you see my tea ball is in here with the purple there. But if you put, that's what it looked like until you put the lemon in there and then it changed colors because, you know, uh, that's what Dr. Amon, that's how she get down. And I'm gonna drop the link calabash There we go on Monday, Monday night. Right, wait, hold on, hold on. Let me solo lay out this. Uh, what what is this? There's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. Octavia, mm. Octavia Butler giving y'all that eye. And what you all did, if y'all haven't seen it, because you did, thank you, Professor Hunter. Share that conversation that you had on her birthday on YouTube. So if you go to your YouTube channel, y'all watch that. That was yeah. a rich conversation you had, I'll tell you. We had it way before I knew it was a 75th birthday, way before it was just, I knew this was going to be an important, uh, let me just say. She, she, whispered, she whispered in your yeah, ear. No, no, genius. I'm like, no, I'm just obedient. When I hear a thing, I do a thing. When I see a thing, I'm going to react and act accordingly to what the spirit is telling me to do. And we all should tap into that because uh, it's important and the spirits are talking right now. Um, gotcha. um, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lori. Uh, let's you. leave with a couple of things. I want to add this uh, quote because you talked wow. about. So she said, "In order to rise from its own ashes, a phoenix must first burn." So we have to burn out all of the things that um, don't serve us and don't free us. And um, I want to end with this quote from her. I don't know if we can see it. Is it? It says, forget inspiration. Habit is more dependable. Habit will sustain you whether you're inspired or not. And I feel like for us, you know, it's the habit of getting up every day with the goal of, you know, first physically, let me drink my water, let me take care of my health, but also what can I do to improve my home, my community, and then my world. And everybody has a brick to bring. And it's a habit, 120 episodes codified something because we decided to get up every Saturday and do this. And now every Sunday and now every Monday and Tuesday, Meta Netcher, we Meta made it. Dr. Beatty, we're learning hieroglyphs. Why? Because we're going to Kemet and we're going to Egypt and we don't want a guide telling us what the ancestors said. We are able to now interpret because of this space and being able to do that. And, and also be able to talk to each other in our various patois, our pigeons, and since we all know Meta Nature, that's when it really opens up. That's when the Jamaicans and the Haitians and the Puerto Ricans and the Africans who speak up say, wait, 
we all know this one language and here go my language and here's that and here come the french we think nah creole is not french and we know better nature now which now we really know how shaky french is as a language you go in other words oh this is about to, we just getting stuck that's right this that's the point bring who you are when we all learn something in common now we built something that's when it opens up i love that's it. when it opens up all right. Well, family, I'll see y'all in those uh, Nubian streets. I appreciate uh, everyone. Uh, absolutely love you. And let me just uh, end with this. And this is the last image. We'll see everyone. Everyone in the Nubian streets. God bless. Thank you. <laughs>